Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Now, the important thing is to be realistic. We all like you here, you know that. But you're a nigger. And a lawyer is no realistic goal for a nigger. But why Mr. Ostrowski? I get the best grades in class. I got voted class president. I want to be a lawyer. Now, I want you to think about something that you can be. Former President Donald Trump could be indicted again this week, this time in Georgia over efforts to subvert the, te- the state's 2020 election result. The person responsible for pursuing that case is Fonnie Willis, the district attorney in Fulton County. Willis is known for her wide-reaching racketeering cases and making history as the first black woman elected top prosecutor in Atlanta. WABE Sam Greenglass reports. Orange security barriers now surround the Fulton County Courthouse as prosecutors inside prepare what could be a historic case focused on a former president. But as this new security took effect downtown, Willis spent a recent Saturday at a local park handing out book bags to kids heading back to school. We want people to not only see us as being those people that put their nephews or their sons in jail, but that we're serious about being a part of the community. Willis was elected in 2020 and took office just a few days before that infamous phone call when Trump asked Georgia's secretary of state to find him votes. Two and a half years after that phone call spurred Willis's investigation, she says her office is ready to go and has strongly signaled she'll ask a grand jury to charge multiple people. I'm living my dream. There's a lot of people as smart as Fonnie Willis, but somehow the citizens of Fulton County selected me. I'm still very humbled. And as long as I sit here, I'm going to do what's needed to keep this community safe. Willis got her start as a prosecutor in the Fulton DA's office and first made her name prosecuting a cheating scandal in Atlanta public schools. The sweeping racketeering case resulted in 11 convictions. Willis has said she's a fan of using Georgia's broad RICO law to prosecute complex webs of criminal activity. She's deployed RICO to go after gangs and is expected to use it for a Trump indictment, too. At least I believe she was called for a time such as this. That's former DeKalb County prosecutor Gwen Keyes Fleming, who's known Willis for two decades. But not everyone is praising Fulton County's district attorney. Some have questioned whether devoting resources to potentially prosecuting a former president comes at the cost of resolving other cases. And former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig recently suggested Willis's investigation could undermine the federal election interference case against Trump. Willis's investigation has been unforgivably sloppy, hampered by prosecutorial incompetence, and hopelessly tainted by her own self-interested politics. Honig notes that Willis, a Democrat, was disqualified from prosecuting a fraudulent elector because she hosted a fundraiser for his political opponent. Trump has unsuccessfully filed formal motions to disqualify Willis, but he's also gone further, disparaging her at rallies as the young racist in Atlanta. Gwen Keys Fleming says it's not easy being the first. Like Willis, she was also the first black woman elected district attorney in her county. While we may be presented with headwinds that are different, all of us were more than prepared to step into the role, Fonnie included, and 
we all honored our oath and Fani will do the same. Willis says she's never doubted whether the Trump probe was worth pursuing. Absolutely not. There are some moments that are troubling and concerning, but those moments are based on like some of the racist comments that get sent to me. She says she's received numerous threats. We have people that are still so ignorant, but that reality will not deter me from my work. Nearby the pavilion where Willis is handing out backpacks, East Point resident Gail Alexander says it felt like a slap in the face when Trump and his allies tried to interfere with Georgia's election result. Oh, it made me mad. Really, really mad. Alexander says she's grateful her district attorney took on this investigation, but she's not confident anyone will ultimately be held accountable. I'm going to be honest with you. If it does, it will surprise me. Truly. If a grand jury does return an indictment this week, the path ahead will be long and uncertain, both for Fonnie Willis and potentially former President Trump. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. Donald Trump has pulled the hood off of, the sheet off of, the cover off of the system of racism, white supremacy. See, he pulled it off, and he's talking with more clarity than anybody else who all the other candidates quietly, quietly are thinking about racism, but they're not talking overtly about it. But Donald Trump is talking. So like I said, Donald Trump's Trump card is the race card in the system of racism, white supremacy. With each passing indictment of former President Donald Trump up to Four indictments now. Republicans appear largely unfazed. So what explains that? And what does it mean for the next phase of the Republican presidential primary? NPR senior political correspondent and editor Domenico Montanaro is here to discuss. Good morning, Domenico. Good morning, Leela. Okay, so we should get across first that we're talking about Trump's grip on the base of his party, right? He's viewed far more negatively overall. Yeah, I mean, overall, he remains highly unpopular, you know, and has had a repelling effect, frankly, with independence. You know, Trump has led his party to a few disappointing elections in a row, and he's done very little to expand his base beyond that in the years since winning the White House in 2016. So it's pretty hard to see his path to winning again in 2024 without some help potentially from a third party. Mm. And that's why, you know, you hear Democratic strategists and pollsters really ringing the alarm bells about these potential third party efforts that have been cropping up recently, especially because Trump and Biden are so unpopular right now. Now, Trump is competing in the Republican primary, and that's where he's seen far more favorably. Yeah, I mean, with Republicans, it's a totally different story. They're living right. in a completely different universe than Democrats and independents when it comes to Trump. You know, about half of Republican voters seem nearly locked in for him and seem to believe almost everything that he tells them about what he claims are witch hunts and double standards. And that includes his baseless election claims. You know, we know that Joe Biden won in 2020 fair and square, but a recent CNN poll showed that seven in 10 Republicans do not believe that. Hmm. 56% of those Republicans who said that they believe Biden 
lost, said that they based those views on, get this, solid evidence of which there's none. Right. You know, it really just shows how hyper-partisan our political environments become and the results of Trump and other Republicans' relentless campaigns against expertise and definitive sources. And once you're able to undermine those things, you can really make people believe almost anything. Now, since the Georgia indictment came out on Monday, are you seeing new efforts by Trump to reinforce this sense of grievance with his followers? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's been proven repeatedly in recounts, audits, dozens of court cases that there were no widespread fraud that would have changed any results. And yet Trump will be at it again Monday in what he's calling a news conference from his golf course in New Jersey. He says he's going to present evidence of fraud that will vindicate him. But this is really an old page from the Trump playbook. He's done this over and over again since he lost in 2020. And all of the conspiracies he's put forward have been disproven. In fact, Georgia Republican governor Brian Kemp swatted these claims aside yesterday. He said again that the state's elections are secure and fair and that no one has proved anything under oath in a court of law and that there was no substantive fraud. Kemp really is an interesting figure. He's a Republican who rebuffed Trump and then cruised to reelection in a swing state. But not many other Republicans or any of Trump's current primary opponents you know, have really chosen or been able to follow that model. Right. And that brings us to the first Republican presidential debate set for Wednesday of next week. First of all, we don't even know if Trump will participate, but either way, his presence will be looming there. Oh, definitely. I mean, we know that the other campaigns have had Trump at the center of their debate prep. You know, some candidates who've been lagging want to make Trump answer for these indictments. I'm thinking of former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie and former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson and others. But, you know, the thinking in Trump world is why bother when he's so far ahead in the polls. If there was a time to make a move, you know, you might think it would start next week in a primetime debate. We're going to see because we're less than five months away from the Iowa caucuses now. NPR's Domenico Montanaro. Thanks, Domenico. You're welcome. Uh, not only um, Florida and whatnot, I mean, out of Brazil and whatnot. You know, you've got white people in Brazil. People kind of assume that they know, you know, that everybody in Brazil is non-white. You know, or in South America, Argentina is mostly white. A lot of them got German backgrounds. Next, let's go to celebrations in the streets of Buenos Aires in Argentina. after the far-right politician Javier Malay shocked his opponents by winning decisively in an election to select the candidates for presidential elections in October. Mr Malay is known for his regular TV appearances and famed for his voluminous hair and sideburns. He's also an admirer of the former US President Donald Trump. He pushed the conservative bloc into second place. Today, we are the force with most votes because we are the true opposition. We are the only ones who want a real change. Because remember, a different Argentina is impossible with the same old people. The same old people who've always failed. The same old people who've been failing for a hundred years. Matthias Siebel is from BBC Monday. He started as a journalist, as an economic journalist with extreme ideas and this colorful style and because TV loves this kind of character, Mm. he became really, really popular. So he decided to jump from the TV to politics and these extreme ideas in a country with 100% of inflation annually started to draw attention and now we have this result. 
And you're Argentinian. I am. What do you think is his appeal? Is it that he's something completely new? I think he has several appeals. One is he's an outsider and he says that the caste, he called the, the old politicians, has ruined the country. The, the economic situation in Argentina is so, so serious at the moment. But at the same time, we have a, a really toxic relationship with the American dollar. Mm -hmm. We've been, the, the generation who votes for Millet has been suffering a huge level of inflation and uh, local currency losing value every day. So the, the American dollar is like the only place that you can trust, the only thing where you can be safe. And he's proposing a dollarization of the economy. He wants the American dollar to be the local currency of Argentina. And that idea, even if it's difficult or impossible, is really, really attractive. And I was just looking at his Instagram before we came on air and I saw that he's making a lot of the fact that the former president of Brazil, Bolsonaro, is supporting him. Yes, absolutely. He's like an Argentinian Bolsonaro with our own local Argentinian field. But at the same time, he's dangerous. We have to recognize that some of his ideas is like bomb the central bank of Argentina because he says we have to close the central bank because it's useless. Mm -hmm. So it's like it's not just colorful. Mm -hmm. Some ideas are really extreme. Matthias Siebel from BBC Mundo. What do you really know about living in Hawaii? Like, what do you know about the traffic or how the islands are different or what it really costs to live here? Well, I'm going to break down 10 realities of living in Hawaii for you right now. We begin today's show in Hawaii where the death toll from the Maui fire stands at 111, but as many as a 1,000 people remain unaccounted for. As the search for bodies continues, we look today at what some Native Hawaiians are calling plantation disaster capitalism, a growing fear that wealthy interests will seize land and water resources in this time of crisis. The writer Naomi Klein and the Hawaiian law professor Kapuala Sprout write about plantation disaster capitalism in a new article in The Guardian. They write, quote, it's a name that speaks to contemporary forms of neocolonialism and climate profiteering, like the real estate agents who've been cold calling Lahaina residents who've lost everything to the fire and prodding them to sell their ancestral lands rather than wait for compensation. But it also places these moves inside the long and ongoing history of settler colonial resource theft and trickery, making clear that while disaster capitalism might have some modern disguises, it's a very old tactic, a tactic that Native Hawaiians have a great deal of experience resisting. Those were the words of Naomi Klein and Kapua Sprout in The Guardian. Well, on Thursday night, I spoke to Professor Sprout from her home on the island of Kauai. She's a professor of law at Kahuleao Native Hawaiian Law Center. She also co-directs the Native Hawaiian Rights Clinic at the University of Hawaii at Manoa School of Law. I asked her to describe what's happening on Maui. Well, mahalo, Amy, for this opportunity to be here. To be quite honest, things are pretty brutal right now in Maui Komohana, or in West Maui. People are still trying desperately to find ways forward from this disaster of untold proportions. And I'm not on Maui. I'm actually um, on the island of Kauai, so a couple islands over. 
Um, and I have not been there since the fire, but that's also absolutely appropriate because people who don't need to be there should stay away, but send support from afar, regardless of what that looks like, whether that means making and sending poi or writing opinion pieces or sending money, um, whatever is the best way people can support from where they are, I think is really important. Um, but the word from our network of folks on the ground is that people are really struggling. I mean, our community has rallied in amazing ways, and I think that that's part of the message that we want to get out, you know, that Lahaina strong and Maui strong, that those are more than sayings. Our people are incredibly resilient. People aren't waiting on FEMA or even on the state or county. Relief organizations are springing up in people's homes and their garages and supplies are coming in by boat, by plane, by vehicle when the roads are open. Um, but there are also a lot of uncertainties and people are concerned because what's galling for me is I see in the midst of, you know, all of this attention and focus and resources being streamed towards Maui that really there's a naked power grab and really a land and water grab that's also underway. There's been talk already about um, folks getting offers on their homes, and I know from friends that that's happening. Um, but as I mentioned, there's also water grab in the works, and, and the discussion around this really makes me fear for the future of Lahaina and whether or not it will be one that includes Native Hawaiians and other local people, or whether, or whether the Build Back will focus on outsiders. Let's talk about each issue. First, the land grab. What exactly does that mean? So to be clear again, I am not on the ground on Maui, but what I understand from people who are there is that there are realtors and there are others who are making offers to people in their most desperate time of need when people are, you know, desperate for funding and other resources to try to build back their lives. People are getting offers on their ancestral homes, um, lands that here in Hawaii, when we talk about ancestral lands and our connection to place, um, we talk in generations and in hundreds of years. And so our Native Hawaiian Rights Clinic has been on the ground in Maui Kumohana working with community members for several years now. And many of our community members have long-standing relationships to place. And it's some of these community members who are getting offers on their homes at this most difficult time, which in my opinion, of course, is, is completely inappropriate. You talk about plantation disaster capitalism. Explain. Plantation disaster capitalism, I think, is unfortunately the perfect term for what's going on in Maui Komohana or in West Maui right now. Um, the plantations, the large landed interests that have had control over not just the land, but really much of Hawaii's and Maui Komohana's resources for the last several centuries are using this opportunity, of, are using this time of tremendous trauma for the people of Maui to swoop in and to get past the law, basically. They're using the emergency proclamation that the governor put into place the day after the fires to, you know, ravage Lahaina. And they're using this as an opportunity to try to get their way, especially with respect to water resources, um, something they could not achieve when the law and Hawaii's water code in particular were in place. Talk more about the water grab. So in Hawaii, Oleikawai, water is life. It's one of our most important resources. In fact, there are many people who would say fresh water is our most important resource. And it's what enabled our people to be able to not just survive, but really thrive in Hawaii for more than a millennia. 
And in Lahaina in particular, this area, sure, it's special for people who come on vacation and people who know French Street. But for the people of this community, Lahaina was really the seat of the Hawaiian kingdom. It was the capital before the island of, before Oahu. And part of the reason that that was so, that Lahaina was such an important place, was because of the abundance of resources and the abundance of water resources in particular. Before the arrival of Europeans in Hawaii, Lahaina was actually known as the Venice of the Pacific, which for folks who have been there recently might seem extraordinary. Right now, Lahaina has been desiccated and is almost like a dry desert area. But when it was managed by Kanaka Maoli, by Native Hawaiians, it was abundant with water and other resources. So what happened was that with the arrival of plantation interests, those water resources, and especially after the capital was moved to Oahu, those resources were grabbed up by landed plantation interests. So first sugar plantations and pineapple plantations, and later those resources were diverted to support um, other kinds of development, including luxury residential development, and even to support hotels in some instances. And so what happened is that the vaivai, as we call it, the wealth of Lahaina was actually taken by these corporations. And so what we also know, at least the people from Hawaii, is that part of the reason for this extraordinary tragedy um, in Maui Komohana or in West Maui is also because it's, there has been more than a century of plantation water mismanagement in this area. It's because of extractive water policies where water hasn't remained on the land, invasive grasses have come up. That's what created the tinderbox and this unfortunate situation of the tragic fire that took place earlier this month. Um, you've raised the issue of the governor wasting no time in issuing emergency proclamations as the wildfires continue to burn, which suspended a series of laws, uh, including Hawaii State Water Code. Can you talk about why this is significant? I think part of what's so disappointing in the way the governor in partnership with large landed interests um, in Maui Komohana have tried to accomplish this naked power grab because really it's more than just a water grab, it's also a power grab, is that they're specifically usurping both the law and more than that, they're usurping longstanding and broad-based community interest and support for more proactive water management and water management that's gonna ensure that the resources benefit the people. So to provide some context, for several years now, Hawaii State Water Commission has proactively attempted to um, create what we call water management designation, which is really just a fancy term. It's an additional layer, kind of like zoning, that goes over an area where we know water resources are threatened. And once that happens, there's an additional layer of permitting that's invoked that allows the Water Commission to revisit allocations and how water is actually used and distributed. This is really important because in Hawaii, we have a public trust doctrine, which means that our water resources are managed for present and future generations and cannot be owned by any individual. But the problem is that despite what we call the black letter law, in many ways in Hawaii and for the last century at least, might has made right. And in small towns like Lahaina, um, companies with a lot of influence have been able to maintain control of the water resources, even when there are interests like Native Hawaiian families, like the streams themselves, that have a higher call to right or higher water rights, at least according to the Black Letter Law. So part of the situation 
in Malikomohana is that because of this long history of struggle, um, Native Hawaiians and really people across the community came forward, participated in public hearings before our state water commission and loudly called for more proactive water management. And in June 2022, they were successful in achieving this water management area designation for Lahaina. That means additional permit protections were put into place and many folks, Native Hawaiians who have superior rights, but who rights, whose rights have been ignored, were able to come forward and begin a permitting process. Unfortunately, those existing water use permit applications were due on Monday, August 7th, and the fire ravaged Lahaina on Tuesday, August 8th. And then on Wednesday, August 9th, the governor's office issued these emergency proclamations which suspended the water code. So despite this huge effort to try and put this additional protection in place, which of course was predictably opposed by industry interests and development interests, but they were unsuccessful. Um, the Water Commission unanimously voted for water management area designation. And yet um, then what they were unable to accomplish legally, they were able to accomplish with the support of the governor and the emergency proclamation. And so it's unfortunate that what we see, then that's why what's happening right now it epitomizes plantation disaster capitalism. Because here we have a handful of incredibly privileged, large landed interests using this terrible tragedy to displace and to push through laws that they were unable to secure um, when Hawaii State Water Code was in place. Beginning in 2019, Clackamas, Multnomah, and Washington counties have worked together on a series of reports to document the ways that climate change is affecting people's health and well-being. The latest was just released. It's the first biennial report that includes data on the heat dome of 2021, and the first one to take a deeper look into the connections between acute climate events and mental health. Brendan Haggerty is the Healthy Homes and Communities Manager at the Multnomah County Health Department, and he joins me now. Welcome. Hi, Dave. Nice to be with you. It's great to have you on. So this is a third report of its kind, but as I noted, it seems to be the first one to, to offer a broad view of climate change's impacts on mental health. Why did you want to include this in the report? Well, I think anyone who lived through the 2020 wildfires or the 2021 heat dome remembers the, the feelings of anxiety that were common during that time. It was something that we recognized anecdotally in ourselves and among our community, and it's being recognized broadly in public health as a as a research discipline. Um, and we, we knew we wanted to try to capture that trend in the region. Um, in the in the 
most recent version of the report um, from two years ago, I should say, we issued a call for help basically in how to measure this because we looked high and low for good ways to measure this and, and didn't come up with an answer that we liked. Um, so well, in what, this what report- were the, What were the challenges in getting data about this? It's a great question. Um, you know, all of us have a primary care doctor for our physical health needs. That's not true of our mental health needs. Um, and so in our, if we compare it to other kinds of diseases, we have lots of good data, right, from, from what doctors ag aggregate data and report. Um, we don't really have the same thing for, for mental health conditions. You don't have the same for mental health conditions, meaning that that there were it was it wasn't as easy then to to find long term data that you could correlate to serious climate affected events. Yeah, there were, for for a lot of different kinds of diseases, most of the ones that we ha include in this report. We have systems set up so we can track trends over time. Those same systems just don't exist for for mental health impacts. So where did you end up turning? Well, I'm really proud of the colleagues who worked on this with me from Washington and Clackamas and um, Multnomah counties because we came up with, I think, some pretty creative ways to do this. One of those is tracking internet search terms. And so we found that in the weeks following the heat dome, for example, search terms associated with trauma showed uh, an increase in, in the frequency in our region. So, you know, people searching terms like um, mental health services, um, though we, we could see an increase in those terms. Another thing that we did was interview um, mental health care providers and responders to hear what they were seeing in their practice. And that yielded some really rich insights. Um, but again, I think we're we're still going to struggle to find ways to track this over time. So this is this is an ongoing challenge for us. What were some of the insights that um, you got from those first responders or mental health professionals? Um, people were really clear that access to mental health services is a really big barrier. Um, they're seeing overwhelming demand and not enough services, especially during emergency events. I think another insight that we had was that um, for a lot of folks, the, the climate events, the climate hazards are a compounding factor. They're, they're adding on another layer of stress to folks, what folks are already experiencing. And if you think about that during the pandemic, during a housing crisis, we had a lot of folks dealing with a lot of stressors, and the, the the climate hazard was a compounding thing on top of that. What about demographics? I mean, what groups did you find were at higher risk for negative mental health outcomes from climate change? The folks we talked to identified um, people experiencing houselessness, uh, older people and black, indigenous, and people of color as being more vulnerable to experiencing mental health effects. So what can you do about this at the county level if part of your mission is to actually improve community health in the region? 
what can you do with the data that you have collected? Well, I think um, one thing we can do is plan ahead and learn from the, the past climate events that we've already been through. I think during the 2020 wildfires and then again in the 2021 heat dome, um, you know, we were kind of learning as we went. We had some plans in place, but they weren't quite calibrated to the, the magnitude and the severity of those events. Um, so we can we can be better about planning so that we have resources available. And that might look like, you know, making sure that our own providers have uh, have adequate coverage during the season when, when we might experience these hazards. Um, and I think we can also provide training to the providers that we work with directly uh, so that they're better equipped to help people through this stressor. Um, do you plan to dig deeper into this issue of, of climate change and mental health for future reports? We will absolutely continue to make attempts to measure this. Um, I, our hope in publishing this report with this this attempt to uh, track mental health impacts is that um, you know it might it might uh, attract the notice of some folks who could help us with this. In particular, you know, academic partnerships I think could be really helpful here. This is um, this is an, an emerging area of public health that that we need all the help we can get with. If you're just tuning in, we're talking right now about the effects of climate change on our mental and physical health. It's the subject of a new report by Multnomah, Washington, and Clackamas counties. We're talking with Brendan Haggerty, who is a Healthy Homes and Communities Manager at the Multnomah County Health Department. One of the um, newer pieces of this report is, uh, again, sort of a more granular look at data from emergency department visits. What stood out to you in in the data that you crunched? Well, I think um, we did notice that compared to the other symptoms we looked at in emergency department data, we found that more people were visiting emergency rooms for air quality related illness than for any of the other conditions. Um, that that includes people going to the emergency room with concerns about pollen allergies, um, which is a one pathway by which climate change can impact health. Um, I think what we also noticed is that we saw some pretty unusual things in 2020 um, during the first year of the pandemic where people's, people's patterns of exposure changed or maybe they were nervous about accessing healthcare for fear of exposure to COVID-19. Um, so we noticed some some really unusual things in the data from that year. But as we're looking at it this year, it does look like rates are going back somewhere closer to pre-pandemic levels. Hmm. You know, we talked about disparities in mental health impacts from climate change. Do those disparities hold true when you look at, say, emergency department visits? Um, they do. I would say broadly, the health impacts of climate change are visiting our region's most vulnerable residents first and worst. Um, they're more severe among older adults, children, people experiencing houselessness, uh, communities of color, communities that are ge geographically isolated, um, people who work outdoors, and people who lack access to emergency communication systems. 
This is the first regional climate and health monitoring report that includes the deadly heat dome of 2021. A lot has been written about that event at this point, more than two years later. What more does this report add? You know, something that really stands out to me is um, the rate of hospitalizations for heat illness during 2021. It was the, the chart in the report looks like a hockey stick. They're kind of low numbers going back for more than a decade and then a huge spike in 2021. Um, that's not something that we had published before, but the increase was, you know, five and a half times more than expected or, you know, Think about that as 550%. It's a really big increase. It means 74 people were hospitalized in the region um, more than we would have expected on in a typical summer. It's a really big number. It's costly, and it has real impacts on people's lives. Uh, I was the first, one of the first. My first day was state trooper coming, putting me in the backseat of the car, and meeting the other black kids with six of us. And seeing all of those parents and also KKK members uh, having signs and throwing cans at us, spitting at us, we lived in the threat of death every day, every day. So I was just lost in this vacuum uh, between integration and segregation and, and racism. That was my childhood. I was angry for years. Angry. The Arkansas Department of Education will no longer recognize African-American studies as an advanced placement course. The change came just days before the new school year, leading to confusion and anger on social media. THV 11's Ian Russell spoke with state education leaders to find out why they made this decision. Many of you have seen posts like this, a screenshot of an email sent to schools in Arkansas from the State Department of Education. That post shows a course, specifically Advanced Placement African American Studies, now listed as deleted. Online, you can still find it on the department's course code management system with the caveat that it needs ADE approval for this year. Since then, there's been a lot of concern and confusion on social media, so we took that straight to the State Secretary of Education, Jacob Oliva. I spoke with him on the phone. He told me this is something the department has been discussing with school districts since January, following Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders' executive order prohibiting indoctrination and critical race theory in schools. Oliva added that the main reason the course is now no longer considered for AP credit is a lack of teacher training, something that he doesn't expect to happen until next year. The department provided additional background, saying the AP African American Studies course is a pilot course, first offered last year and is undergoing revisions. ADE also sent a statement reading, quote, The department encourages the teaching of all American history and supports rigorous courses not based on opinions or indoctrinations. Many of you have also expressed concern at the fact that this happened just days before the new school year. I asked Oliva, why do that? And were there conversations that could have led to this decision being made earlier? He told me he didn't have a specific reason for that. And again, the discussions have been ongoing for months. We've reached out to multiple districts in central Arkansas for their thoughts on this change, as well as many of our colleges and universities. A UALR spokesperson tells me they work closely with ADE to make sure they're aligned with the courses they accept and that at this time the course is not accepted, but that could be revisited in the future. Other schools say they're still looking into how this affects them. Back to you. Ian, thank you. Some Arkansas schools are still offering African-American history courses, but 
These are not advanced placement. Other courses such as European history, United States history, and world history modern are still offered under the AP program as, quote, vetted courses. Regular Dynamo, Dr. Marcia Elizabeth Sutherland. Uh, keep Dr. it up. Oh, yes, yes. Was that someone? Before you go, mm -hmm. uh, people must understand the nature of capitalism. It's very important. And we start on new tonight at 10 as a Colorado woman is suing one of the largest banks in the country claiming racial discrimination. At 61 years old, Jeanetta Vaughn says she was racially profiled at a branch in Aurora, resulting in the manager calling the police on her for banking while black, basically using police as intimidation. Tonight, she's sharing her side of the story. It was June 9th of last year when two Aurora officers were called to this Chase Bank on Buckley Road for a trespassing call. Another one, Chicago police officer. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Let's back up. The incident started when Janetta Vaughn walked into the branch that morning to get checks from a teller. You can see her on bank surveillance walking in. Vaughn telling Fox 31 she sat in a chair to unlock her bank card, which she says she keeps locked for security reasons as a former government employee. Then she was approached by the bank manager who asked if she needed anything. I told her, I said, no, I'm unlocking my card, you know, on my phone, and then I'm going to go up and do my business. The complaint states that the manager then stated, you don't need to be rude. She says, well, you're not welcome here. I'm the branch manager and you're not welcome here. And I says, what do you mean? I says, my money is here. I said, my account is here. She says, well, you're not welcome here, and I'm going to call the police. That manager went into the back and dialed 911, claiming trespassing. Attorneys providing us with that call. She told me to go away, that when she was ready, she would come up, and I don't need to be giving her the 411. Very rude. That's when officers arrived. I'm just trying to do my business. Also talking with the branch manager herself. But all she had to do was let me know what she was doing and, and not with the snarky attitude and threatening me with video. Vaughn said she's been a member of Chase Bank since 2019, never made a snarky comment or recorded anyone in the 60-second interaction. It seemed to be like a day. To me. On body cam, officers can be heard telling the manager there's no signs posted stating no recording inside. Vaughn didn't appear aggressive and being rude isn't a law enforcement matter. All I could see was myself being handcuffed or dragged out or shot or something. Vaughn overwhelmed with fear, saying she waited for her husband and then left the bank, but is now filing this lawsuit against the manager and J.P. Morgan Chase. This is something that has to stop. Um, whether it's at a banking institution or a grocery store, movie theaters, no matter where you are, I have the right to be there. And Vaughn was never charged with trespassing. The complaint also alleges that since September of 2021, four racial discrimination complaints have been made at that same location on Buckley Road. I did reach out to J.P. Morgan Chase for comment about those allegations and Ms. Vaughn's incident, and they briefly stated, quote, we disagree with the allegation. That's the only comment we have. The man, race, class, genre, and the dilemmas of black manhood. A Columbia mother tells us about her latest efforts to get answers about her son's death. Thanks for joining us tonight. I'm Lucas Geisler. Megan has the night off. That mother is suing the city and a detective that handled her son's death in 2020. We told you when Freddie McKee died from an alleged overdose, ABC 17's Marina Diaz 
joins us live in the newsroom tonight. Marina, several of the counts in this lawsuit are for racial discrimination. Lucas, I dug through these court documents and there's over 20 pages and I found that she is suing for six counts and they are all mostly for racial discrimination. I was able to speak to McKee's mother this evening and she told me that this has been a long and exhausting process, but she added that she would do this all over again for her son. It's been a long time coming. I mean, lots of uh, long hours, lots of lots of work, sometimes seven days a week. Um, but I said I was going to do this fight until my last breath. Dorecia McKee has filed a lawsuit against the City of Columbia and CPD Detective Stephen Wilmoth for what she is claiming to be racially motivated mishandling of the investigation into her son's death. Her son, Freddie McKee, was found dead on Switzler Street on July 8th. She claims police failed to follow up on several leads in the case that authorities ultimately called an overdose. I miss my son. Um, I know he misses me. Uh, he was my heart. He was my everything. I, he has a daughter uh, that's 15 that um, thinks about him all the time. McKee sued the city on six claims including racial discrimination, equal protection, and emotional distress. I have to prepare myself for going forward because, again, you know, you're dealing with um, the Columbia Police Department. And, again, they, they are, you know, it, even with their power and their authority and their money, um, the evidence that I have... Uh, it's it's overwhelming. Lucas, McKee filed this lawsuit on her own behalf, and she is asking for more than $25,000 per count. Reporting live in the newsroom, Marina Diaz, ABC 17 News. All right, thank you, Marina. We reached out to the city of Columbia for comment. We're told they don't comment on pending lawsuits. Ten law enforcement officers in the Bay Area have been indicted by the U.S. attorney on charges of corruption and violating civil rights. It's the result of a more than two years long FBI investigation into alleged wrongdoing and abusive policing in two Bay Area suburbs. And Sandia Dirks has been following the story and joins us. We uh, will note that uh, there'll be reference to racist language allegedly used by some of these officers. Sandia, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Scott. And tell us, please, what's in these charges. So it all started with a tip that police officers in this town, Antioch, California, which is about 45 minutes north of Oakland, were allegedly cheating on college classes in order to pass the classes and be eligible for raises. Allegedly, some officers in the neighboring town of Pittsburgh were also cheating. But the charges go much further. Some officers are accused of a conspiracy to sell drugs, anabolic steroids to be exact. Another is accused of obstructing an FBI murder investigation and destroying evidence. And then three Antioch police officers have been explicitly accused of civil rights violations. What violations specifically? So this indictment is 29 pages long, and it you know alleges a deeply disturbing pattern of illegal uses of force, and that these officers then bragged about that to each other. Here's Ismail Ramsey, the U.S. attorney for Northern California. The defendants also allegedly shared photos of their victims' injuries and even collected 
as mementos, spent ammunition from their attacks on the people of Antioch. Allegedly, one officer would sick his police dog on people, and every time his police dog would violently bite someone, he would send a text message counting the number of bites he was racking up, all the way up to 28 dog bites. Another officer is accused of shooting people with what's known as a 40-millimeter launcher weapon, which fires what police call less-than-lethal ammunition. It can still severely hurt people. And that same officer is accused of collecting the spent munitions and creating what the indictment calls a trophy flag out of them. And then they allegedly lied about it. The indictment accuses them of covering up illegal uses of force in police reports by saying it was all necessary and justifiable. All of the officers have pleaded not guilty to all of these charges. And who, Sandy, are these officers accused of targeting? Well, during the FBI investigation, in fact, this past spring, a trove of racist and sexist messages was released to the press and the public. Some of them are even referenced as evidence in the indictment, but it goes beyond just the officers charged. In total, almost half of the department was on the text chain and either was actively texting or said nothing to stop it. In these texts, police officers call black people gorillas and the N-word. They admit to violating civil rights. They talk about manufacturing confessions, and they talk about targeting black people for violence. So race is a huge part of what's happening here. Even though it's not necessarily front and center in the indictments, Interestingly, the charges of cheating on college courses, wire fraud, carry 20 years, twice as much time as the alleged civil rights abuses. Sandia, what, what kind of reaction have you heard so far in the community? I spoke with Shagufa Khan, a young activist who grew up in Antioch. She was crudely mentioned by name in a racist and sexist text. She says a lot of people feel vindicated by seeing all of this out there. We've been fighting for years to hold these Antioch police officers accountable for their actions and what they've done to community members. But she says it's about more than just the officers who are charged. It's about the entire police department and how for a long time it has made residents, especially residents of color, unsafe. As far as these indictments, some of the charged officers have already been fired. Some are suspended. It's a little murky. But next, this case will head to trial unless someone makes a deal. And Sandia Dirks, thanks so much. Thanks, is excited and ready to go to work. He's one of seven dogs in the Ventura County Sheriff's Office canine unit. Thor is a German Shepherd. He is four and a half years old. He was born here in the U.S. Both of his parents are actually uh, from Germany. His mom was actually a sport dog, so if you see uh, those competitions on TV, that's what she did. And then uh, his dad was actually a Glendale PD uh, canine. He's retired. 
Ventura County Sheriff's Deputy Anthony Goldner has been team with Thor for two and a half years. Our normal patrol shifts are 12 hours, so our dogs work 12 hours with us. We're actually on call 24-7, so we can get called out at any time. I'll get up in the morning, I'll let him out, he'll, he'll run around, he'll get some water, we'll play a little bit. Then he'll go into the car and then we go about our days. Some days uh, we can respond anywhere within the county, anywhere from Ojai to Thousand Oaks to Fillmore, Moore Park. If we've got some lull in the time, we'll do some training amongst ourselves. While everyone's seen police canines around, most people don't know much about them. A lot of people think that, oh, we just, we have this canine unit and they just go out and they just bite people nonstop. That's far from the case. Um, we actually log all of our deployments and if you look, 99% of our things, nothing happens. And what they do is, is it's a great tool. While we got on scene, if you think about it and you hear that dog and you've seen those photos or you've seen those videos or you've seen live PD, you know what they're capable of doing and a lot of people give up. We caught up with two canine teams as they were visiting the Rotary Club of Westlake Village, educating people about how they work. Deputy Chad Jones has teamed up with Onyx, a year and a half old Dutch Shepherd. The dog is a great deterrent. I mean, nobody wants to get bit by a dog and then most people have the realization that a dog is a lot faster more agile than them and if they run they're probably not going to get away. Jones says a little known fact about the canines is that depending on where they come from the dogs understand different languages. We have a dog that's trained in Dutch, a couple that are in German, mine is in English. It just kind of depends on the dog, on, on who, on how they're brought up, where they're from, who their foster family is, where they got their training from. While we think of the canines in terms of catching criminals, they can also play a key role in different kinds of searches. Earlier this month, one of the canines helped find a missing hiker in the Los Padres National Forest. Senior Deputy uh, Batista, he actually works out of our Lockwood station. That missing hiker was in that era. His canine is Canine Sam, and Canine Sam is a phenomenal tracking dog. They had a kind of an idea as to where he was. And Sam was actually able to track his scent from that area to about 100 feet from where they ended up finding him. Deputy Anthony Goldner says he loves having Thor as a partner. Oh, it's the best. I mean, I literally go to work with my best friend every single day. Where we patrol is we patrol in, like, for example, I work out of Fillmore. I could be up in Piru area. My nearest backup might be in the city of Fillmore. My backup is right behind me. He's just a door pop away. But it's also a lot of work. They have to do about 40 hours of training a month to stay sharp. One of the little known facts about the units is how they're funded. Most people assume they're paid for with tax dollars. Some do get department funding, but many, like Ventura County's unit, have to raise the money themselves. This is going to be an expensive year because we just got a new dog. So the new dog, like I said, costs anywhere from fifteen dollars to $20,000. And then you throw in training and then also she has to get it fitted for a bulletproof vest, which is anywhere from two dollars to $3,000. Deputy Chad Jones says even some fellow deputies are stunned when they discover the canines aren't funded by the law enforcement agency. He says they're holding one of their biggest annual fundraising events this month to help. Our next one coming up is on August 28th, and it's going to be at the Moorpark Country Club. And that's going to be our golf tournament classic, which we haven't had for almost five or six years now. Everything goes towards the canine unit. <laughs> Here's one more interesting thing about the canines. People want to pet them, but Jones says always, always, always ask first. Every dog is different. We have some dogs on the unit that are friendly towards people, and we have some dogs that are very protective of their handlers, and you have to ask before you even approach or want to touch them. You can find out more about the Ventura County Sheriff's Office Canine Unit, including its fundraising event, on our website, kclu.org. In Thousand Oaks, Lance Orozco, KCLU News. Take out the
papers and the trash. Now to an ABC News exclusive with the 12-year-old handcuffed by police while he was taking out the trash. Police said with a case of mistaken identity. DeMarco Morgan is here with that. Good morning, DeMarco. Michael, good morning to you. The father says what happened to his son should have never happened, telling us the 12-year-old boy is a straight-A student in school who wants to later become an engineer. The father going on to say the situation could have ended badly had his son panicked and took off running. When it happened, I was really, like, shocked and frightened about, like, the situation and how it happened. This morning, 12-year-old Tayshawn Bernard speaking out for the first time after being handcuffed and detained by Lansing, Michigan police while taking out the trash in what authorities are calling a case of mistaken identity. And right now, I'm feeling just the same way, like, just really shocked how, you know, how this kind of came to this circumstance of what's going on. The kid bringing out his trash to be dumped. Cell phone video of the incident seen by millions sparking outrage and a demand for answers. I was so mad I didn't want to hear anything. His father, Michael Bernard, horrified and disgusted. In this time and area in America, I, I am scared, scared for anything to happen to my son. Michael says it all started when he asked his son to take the trash out to the dumpster at their apartment complex last Thursday. He was taking out his trash, huh? When the preteen didn't return after being gone for several minutes, the father says he looked outside to find Tayshawn surrounded by police. I saw police around him, so I dropped what I had in my hand and rushed downstairs and I said to the police officer, I said, why do you have my son in handcuffs? What's the problem? Tayshawn was released moments later but visibly shaken, turning his back to officers as his father, seen here visibly upset as well, continuing to chastise officers as a neighbor continues to record. I'm just watching the addition of his son January Taylor garbage dump. That's what he did. You get what I'm saying? And, he, and that's a trauma, they traumatized my son. He's still puzzled until now. He asks a question, what have I done? The Lansing Police Department posting on Facebook, our officers was pursuing a suspect in a string of Kia thefts wearing neon shorts and a white shirt. A different officer was in the area and saw Tayshawn wearing a very similar outfit and put cuffs on him. Attorneys for the boys say Tayshawn did not have on a white shirt. The shirt that he was wearing was a light gray or a light bluish color shirt. Uh, there's no mistaking if you see that shirt. The department continuing, our hope is we can put this unfortunate case of wrong place, wrong time behind us and continue to represent the community that we serve. And the police chief later posting a separate apology. This morning, the Bernard family wanted accountability and says they are keeping all options on the table, including the possibility of filing a lawsuit. I want justice for my son. Justice. The mayor also apologizing for the ordeal, telling ABC News LPD is in contact with the family and providing support for any trauma involved, saying our officers do their absolute best to protect Lansing. But in this case, a mistake was made and we own it and apologize to those affected. But the family tells us in response they have yet to be contacted by the mayor or police. Guys. Wow. Okay, DeMarco, thanks very much. When I spoke with you yesterday, um, you, you shared uh, a few quick thoughts about uh, the film, The Blind Side. Can you share with our audience, uh, I guess, your observations oh. on that film? I just thought that was a terrific film. Uh, and the, the part of that film that was so amazing was when Sandra Bullock is trying to describe to her friends, her friends, what she is, what, how 
she feels about having this young, non-white, non-female person in her home and their reaction to it. And when she got up and walked away, I thought, I've been where you're going. I thought it was just beautiful. I thought it was a beautiful film. And I think everybody should see it. And everybody should think about it. And think very seriously about it. What would you do if you were in the same situation? How many of us would stand up and be counted? He is a Super Bowl champion, a first-round NFL draft pick, Michael joins us here in studio. Mike, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really my pleasure. Appreciate it. Yeah. My pleasure. One theme from this book and some of the other interviews you've done is that what you see is not always the truth and that there's a lot of narratives out there that may not be even attached to truth. And Michael Orr joins us here in studio, author of the new book, When Your Back's Against the Wall. He wrote, I Beat the Odds. And you just said you, you feel like you've been mislabeled sometimes, <clears throat> misunderstood. And I think at least from what I've read, read in the book, a lot of that stems from how you were portrayed in the movie The Blind Side, and that people might have the wrong idea of your personality, number one, that you were this kind of shy wallflower, <laughs> that you were timid and you had to be kind of like drawn out of your shell, when in reality, you were a workaholic, you were hyper-organized, and you were like, damn it, I'm making something <laughs> of myself no matter what it takes after a rough background. Is that is that the, the big one that you feel you were mislabeled as? I think it took away the hard work and the dedication that I created uh, from a child and going to school in the third grade, getting myself up, first one in the locker room, last one out. Uh, and I think the biggest for me is, you know, being portrayed, uh, not being able to read or write. Uh, second grade, I was doing plays and for in front of the school, and I, I think that's one of the when you go into a locker room and your teammates don't think that you can learn a playbook, you know that weighs heavy uh, on someone. You, you know, and you have to understand. I understand that the movie has given me a position. I'm honored to have the position it's given me, but you know you have to understand. Yeah, before I moved in with the family, I was an all American. That's what I want the generations behind me to see in this book right here, to understand that you don't have to come have someone save you and rescue you to go out and be successful. You got every tool uh, in you. And this book right here is a playbook on life. You know, looking yourself in the mirror when I was 11, 12 year old kid, telling myself, hey, everyone's around. Everyone around you is even in an even worse situation that you're in. So. You're going to have to get up and do this thing yourself and developing a routine right then uh, when I could have given up at 11, 12-year-old, as an 11 to 12-year-old kid. So that's what I'm trying to paint the message in this book right here. Uh, and looking through everything that I went through and finding a positive in it. And it wasn't that you don't have gratitude to the family that took you in. That's really very not the grateful. Message. Very grateful for uh, every uh, family that uh, helped me uh, throughout this journey. It's a lot of people that deserve a lot of credit. Uh, for me, I want to show the young people and everyone behind me that, hey, you deserve some credit for your hard work. You can get it done. And that's really the goal. 
So for those that don't know, you grew up in a really difficult situation. No one in your family had aspired to really have a career. Many didn't want a job. The people that you were around didn't have anything to do most days. Poverty, homelessness, the projects in Memphis. You were just surrounded by a culture of there's really nothing to life. There's no way out. But you somehow figured out that you needed to see something else. I think you described it as like standing in front of an ocean when you walked to the edge of the projects, that there was a whole something out there that you had no idea about. How, how'd you, how'd you gain a perspective in, in a, in a, a cycle that usually doesn't allow that? I think I was blessed with being on the streets from the time I was three years old, in and out of foster care from three to 10 uh, on the streets for a year. You were blessed. Yes, on the on the streets for a year uh, after running running away from foster home at 10 years old and p- being placed in a mental hospital and running away from there a few weeks later. And the cut, the state just gave up on me, gave back custody. And the struggles that I had early on being inside of in and out of homes on the streets, I needed a routine. That's when I developed a routine. 11, 12 years old, going to school on my own in the third grade. And from their own... Um, and your family, not to interject, but... You smoke crack, don't you? You smoke crack, don't you? A lot of crack addiction amongst your family and your parents. You didn't know your dad. That was dad. the norm. That was the norm at the time. That's the way we grew up. Uh, but you grew up so fast, like I said. You, you understand what's right and what's wrong. So from that point on... When I started going to school on my own, I was going to do the right thing because I knew what the wrong thing was, and I didn't want to be there. And I saw what it did to my family, and I saw the situation that we was in. So, you know, I was going to put it in my mind and imagine a a future and go chase that that was better than what I was around. So I think that was the most important thing was having those struggles early on and being so tired as an 11-year-old kid and forcing myself to – Man, just go to school every day and just be away from that environment and picture myself somewhere else. So uh, I, I think routine, discipline, and being consistent is the key to everything. Without a routine, man, you're, everyone I know who doesn't have a routine, their life's in shambles. So that that's everything to me. I, I think the struggles, it blessed me and it helped me get off the streets a lot earlier than some others would. You talk about food insecurity in this book as well, not knowing not knowing if you're going to open up the fridge and anything's going to be in there. How devastating is that to young people that deal with this because they can't afford to go out and buy their own food? And you talk about you walk through grocery stores and convenience stores and wondered, is today the day I starve or is the day that, today the day I steal food? No, I, I was never going to starve. I was always too competitive. I'm going in the store. I'm going to get what I need. <laughs> I'm getting out of there. So that's not going to happen. Trust me on that one. Um, but it leads to lo- bigger things as you grow older. Uh, those are just petty crimes. Uh, me stealing as a kid, surviving and putting food in the uh, in the refrigerator. Uh, that's just that's just something I had to do. But what it leads to, it leads to uh, poor poor uh, academics in the classroom, behavior problems. And then a few years later, those crimes become armed armed robberies and uh, uh, a lot more dangerous crimes. So 
you know, that that's what hunger does. It's a bigger problem uh, than just, you know, trying to survive as a kid. What food does a 10-year-old <laughs> kid swipe to make it through the day? <laughs> hey, I was a nice-sized kid, so, man, I, I didn't go swipe chips and candy bars. Man. I went and uh, stole chicken and pizzas. <laughs> I, I got the big stuff, man. I'm not I'm not going to get a candy bar at the store, man. Let's be real here. I'm trying to eat for a couple of days. But uh hey, that, that's what it was all about surviving though. So, uh anything that I could get, you know, I was trying to get it. I'm thinking about Michael Orr like supermarket sweep pushing a bunch of candied hams through the through hey, the, I, the I, exit I, door. I, hey, see you guys tomorrow. I put a ham in a coat. You did? <laughs> I will. Thanksgiving coming up, man. We got to eat. Come on, man. We starving out here. Man. For generalities, I generally say that if you want the ultimate expression of white supremacy and the white supremacist mentality, and you want to put it in the form of one person that I would name, and that's something I very seldom do, it would be Jeffrey Dahmer. Hmm. He's the ultimate expression of white supremacy. Everything that he was doing, working in a chocolate factory, the whole nine yards, cannibalism and all of that, and calm, very methodical, wasn't he with young boys, too? Yeah. He was, I mean, I, I forgot how many bodies. Is, you, know, what, you know, something like 20 or something like that. Mm. You know, very methodical. Very meticulous. Went to work on time. Excellent worker. Working in a chocolate factory. Looking at chocolate being churned all day. Been out there trying to churn chocolate at night. Mm. Frozen femurs in the freezer. Jeffrey Dom. The six officers involved in the January abuse case of two black men in Rankin County appeared in court today for to face state charges. 12 News Tia McKenzie, she is live from the Rankin County Court with more on today's hearing. Tia. how the courtroom was packed to maximum capacity as those six officers pleaded guilty once again, this time to state charges. Brett McAlpin, Jeffrey Middleton, Christian Deadman, Hunter Elward, Daniel Opdyke, and Joshua Hartfield each entered the Rankin County Courthouse, wrists shackled to their waist in jail suits. Prosecutors today described the heinous acts that occurred during the raid on a Braxton home. The officers received word that, a, that black men were staying with a white woman there. The officers spoke with each other in code phrases such as work easy and no bag mug shots before raiding the home, beating and torturing Michael Jenkins and Eddie Parker. Jenkins was shot in the mouth during the encounter. The six officers pleaded guilty to several federal charges earlier this month. We came back inside. We observed MJ and EP covered in chocolate syrup and other liquids. Shortly after, MJ and EP were ordered to strip naked and shower off. Their handcuffs were removed. After MJ and EP showered off and changed into clean underwear and sweats, they were handcuffed again and brought to the side bedroom adjacent to the tarport. The officers began discussing the comparative strength of their respective tasers, and they decided to test their tasers on MJ and EP to see which one was the most powerful. Are you 
disagree with this factual basis, Ms. Bell? Yeah, we disagree with what she's saying. The arrest we made against you is made use of force or intimidation. They caused you to change your plea from not guilty to guilty. Promises are hope or reward that make you change your plea from not guilty to guilty. After speaking to your attorney, you want to decide to plead guilty. Tell the court you're freely and voluntarily admitting your guilty crime you plead guilty to. Apparently, you plead guilty to the court. Of course, you understand this court is not bound by any plea bargain agreement to impose the maximum sentence here. You also understand if I accept your plea, you have no right to an appeal. Rankin County Sheriff Brian Bailey released a statement in, in part. I believe today's guilty pleas show the community that our system of checks and balances is effective. As for those six officers, they are expected to be sentenced in mid-November. Live in Rankin County, Tia McKenzie, 12 News. Thank you so much, Tia. Well, Rankin County Sheriff Brian Bailey also included in his statement on today's court proceedings that, quote, the Rankin County Sheriff's Office continues to evaluate and modify its policies, procedures, and training for all Sheriff's Office employees. We have asked for assistance from outside agencies and contracted with outside firms to evaluate us, make recommendations, and conduct training. He adds there these actions are taken to prevent anything like January's tragedy from ever happening again, end quote. And one of the people attending today's hearing was one of the abuse victims himself. Eddie Parker is one of the plaintiffs in a $400 million civil suit filed against the officers. Parker and attorney Trent Walker spoke with 12 News this morning. He offered his reactions to watching the six accused officers appear in court. The view of seeing uh, the same, the Walker saying, the uh, head down, the disgust that uh, everybody that felt you know, for them and uh, that they feel for themselves. I hope um, this is a lesson to uh, everybody out there. Justice will be served. That's right. Thank you. And stay with 12 News as we'll have much more from today's court action and public sentiment about the case in our afternoon and evening newscasts. Don't salt the next man, keep that Lindbergh shit Up in the cut like gay niggas in butt I'm black with Indian, my race should be nut I cut with razor blades, play spades with Aunt Venus Evaluate this rap, take heat of fucking genius Up in the sky, up high, don't puff lie Do you smoke crack, Sam? Prepare to fucking die Fuck crazy, no, my name is Crazy Flow You thought I had eight, but I got ten more off beat and on beat, old school like Beach Street. I stink like Pop Street, make sweat with no teeth. Wasn't I just last week? They were talking about celebrating, celebrating. I don't celebrate anything. Juneteenth, Guy Fox Day, my birthday, Labor Day, not, not 50 years of hip hop, nothing. Didn't I just say last week? I said, man, I find it hard. If not, impossible <laughs> if not a tad bit of necrophilia talk about celebrating 50 years of hip hop 
what are we celebrating? I said, mostly you're talking about a lot of people who are not even here to celebrate anymore. Not that they died from old age. Didn't I just do that last week? Didn't I just give a long list? I didn't even get everybody. It'd be impossible. That would be a whole program. People not with us anymore. I don't even know if I got Prodigy from Mob Deep. but got them this week. Temperatures rising. Just to further illustrate my point, Magoo had to up and die on us. Aaliyah and Magoo at the beginning. That'd be one Dr. Well, Magoo, like, why do we have to have these cartoon names and such? Like, not, not men and women, boys and gals. But man, we don't even get to live long enough to even think about it. Yes, I would like to be. Universal man. I don't want to be Bow Wow. I don't want to be Snoop Dogg. I want to be Universal Woman. Universal Man. That, that, that. We don't have time for that. Out of here. Out of here. Privileged black male. Magoo at 50. Another worthless Negro from Virginia. 50 years to celebrate all the black males who lived long, prosperous lives. context of white supremacy Gus T. Renegade another worthless Negro from Virginia in for another broadcast hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy today's date Saturday August 19 2023 so I have been told weekly compensatory call in if you have observations questions counter racist suggestions Dial in the number 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate, not for spectators. Let us know if you have thoughts, observations, uh, thoughts to people in California. The hurricane, what in the world? We talked about some of that yesterday for neutralizing workplace racism, but hopefully folks are safe. I was checking the L.A. Times and such throughout the day, and they were talking about the protocols and how large the storm is and the magnitude of things. Just, wow, I hope folks are taking maximum uh, precautions, safety, have water stockpiled. I know they were talking about potentially uh, loss of power. So hopefully uh, you can maybe have a backup generator already. That's something we've been talking about for years and having some prep. Uh, any other thing, water, as I just said, food, that sort of thing that can last you for a few weeks in case things go bad, especially if you have small children and maybe even have your uh, bug out bag packed if things get really bad so that you can get out before the roads get clogged and all of that stuff uh, kind of be watching the weather and have a spot more inland maybe that's away from where all of this is going to be where you'll be safe and can reevaluate. but take that seriously all of these major weather I said that yesterday I said the top story for the LA Times was the hurricane they said this is the first time a hurricane has come to LA County in almost 80 years and then the story beneath that was the wildfire in Maui, Hawaii man, white people destroying everything including the climate on the planet 
Hopefully folks have dealt with that well. Number again, 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Share the broadcast. Let people know we are on live. You can give them the number, address where they can listen live, tune in, call in, whatever the case may be. Let folks know you can share the archives to your favorite programs as well. Shouldn't be folks that people who listen, I guess they listen via YouTube. And if people don't upload the videos, because I don't post any content on YouTube, they delete it, post it, just makes me think it's futile at times. Uh, It's not, but you know. Anyway, uh, but people, others will post our content at YouTube. And then if they cease posting, people will think, oh, the cows isn't on anymore. We've been on uninterrupted for 14 years social media addresses have not changed for 14 years email address has not changed for 14 years at least check lots of sabotage might be lots of ways that we get disrupted and that has been the case repeatedly over the years but just give a check. Oh, they're still on. Yes, yes. Sabotage. Got it. Much obliged. Uh, we will be here Monday as well as Tuesday and then rest of the programs as scheduled. I broadcast for Monday. We're doing Sue Klebold's A Mother's Reckoning in the Catherine Massey Book Club. Apologies to Buffalo because I had the segment about the lawsuit filed by the witnesses. I had it all ready to go and just neglected. It was really cumbersome getting the audio together today for many reasons, but I had it right there. I'll include that on Monday to compensate, but I had it right there. (sighs) Doing better. Still learning. Victim. Now, uh, Monday for the book club, one of our listeners had commentary critiques regarding what I said about the John Benet Ramsey murder case which happened in Boulder, Colorado which is a little bit more than 30 minutes drive from Littleton where Columbine massacre happened uh, so I said, hey still learning let's investigate they got bunches and bunches of books on John Benet Ramsey. Missing white woman syndrome, right? I pick a book and get the reading about John Benet Ramsey. The very first section of the book is about O.J. Simpson, racism, and child pornography. That is the preface for John Benet Ramsey for this book. And apparently for many books, you can't discuss the murder of this six-year-old white child without discussing Arenthal James Simpson. She was murdered in uh, the in December of 1996. So I think that would have been in the middle of the civil trial for O.J. Simpson. And then that was one year after the criminal child, criminal trial, not guilty, but amazing. And even if you look at some of the documentaries for John Benet Ramsey, 
some of the people who testified at the O.J. Simpson trial are in the documentary films talking about John Bonet Ramsey. It is O.J. Simpson's world, everybody else, whatever. Anyway, we will chat it up about all of this on Monday. I find it also amazing what they say this is Barbie Summer. Barbenheimer, isn't that some of the hashtags? I think we got Oppenheimer pretty clean. We've had a number of programs talking about all of that and we'll have more to come. But the Barbie aspect, I said, man, we kind of were negligent and they made all that money and I mean the racial con game even John Benet Ramsey her blonde hair that comes up in the case I said man that is right on time sexualization of children <laughs> white people don't care about children Monday 8pm Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific. Now, let me tell you what I did for Tuesday. I do my research. We're all on our Columbine thing and all the rest of it. I say, let me, it's air conditioned at the library, the university library, and I mean crispy, like you have to pack sweaters and bundle up. So when we had our miniature heat wave here of 95 degrees, I gleefully said, let me go do some research. I'll be pretend I'm a nerd. So I'm at the library bundled up, comfortable. I said, what shall I search? Oh, yes, white lies. I look, I'd never even thought of searching. What would pop up? What books and studies pop up if you look for white's deception or white's lies? Tuesday's program wow and I'll even tell you so Tuesday's program which I'm so excited about three authors the main author non-white person with a Nordic white parent and they include the Nordic whiteness of it all Erica K. Jackson we just talked about that I think Norway specifically I skipped that. You know, white guests only. Even though this book was great, I was not really ready to compromise on the role. What I did was I said, oh, it's three authors. One of these people has got to be white. See, I crossed my fingers. One of these people has got to be white. One of these people, yes! I contact the white person. Tuesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, white guests only. Even though it would be fascinating to chat with the non-white white guests only. Have to do a quick revisit. Number one, the whole Hawaii thing. I was reminded the late uh, Professor Trask was a guest on the program, the late part, 2009, November 2009. She joined us from Hawaii and talked about that very legacy of white supremacy racism in that area of the world. And in fact, I remember we've had many guests on the cows who actually called us or joined us live from Hawaii. Professor Robert Perkinson, one I remembered for so many reasons directly connected to what happened in Mississippi with the conviction of those six white officers. Professor Perkinson's book, Texas Tough, about the history of 
carceral punishment in the U.S. and specifically prisons in Texas. That book concludes, it has the passage where the white correctional officer, so-called, he sodomizes a black male as a form of punishment, pulls out his penis and asks the other black male inmates if they want to, in quotes, smell the bat. We talked about that passage specifically with Professor Robert Perkinson. Summertime, June 2010, 14 years, context of white supremacy. And in fact, that is also in slavery by another name. I have to go back to watch the documentary again to see if it's there. If I had to bet $5, I'd say it's not. But that is in slavery by another name, Douglas Blackman, the same thing. They would have blacks on that convict labor system and the sexual terrorism and abuse that these black males were subjected to. All of that for context. I'm just doing it now so I don't forget. We heard last week, Mississippi. Officer Dedman related to Daryl Dedman, the white male who ran over James Craig Anderson, so many listeners wrote in, called in, tweeted, yes, they have heard that report many, many times about the lynching of James Craig Anderson in the summer of 2011. Much obliged for everyone for responding, not being a spectator. But we heard about that case last week. They used a dildo on these two black males, Mr. Jenkins, Mr. Parker, and all the rest of it. And I said, man, what, what are the details? What did they do exactly? We got a copy of the report. Let's get the exact details. You heard some of it in the audio. So let's get the exact rundown. I'm reading this is on page nine. Rankin County lawsuit. It reads, Jenkins and Parker never offered any resistance whatsoever that would justify initiating. Uh, that would justify initially or at any point being repeatedly tased while handcuffed by Rankin County deputies. Heavily redacted taser reports received from defendant Rankin County verify the timeline of this incident and support these allegations. At all times relevant, defendants acts of tasing Jenkins and Parker while handcuffed occurred under the supervision of Sheriff Brian Bailey and Rankin County during these acts. Deputies used racial slurs such as nigger and monkey against Jenkins and Parker. During this prolonged, nearly two-hour torture session, with both men in complete custody and control, Michael C. Jenkins and Eddie Parker were also subject to waterboarding attempts, techniques by defendants Elward McAlpin, Mr. Deadman, and deputies John Doe's one to three. Who are the, they haven't been named? I thought they got camera of all this. Come on now. Deputies tried to coerce the Jenkins and Parker ostensibly to elicit a confession from the men in their custody. Waterboarding or water torture is a brutal practice whereby an interrogator uses techniques to convince the person in his custody 
to believe they are drowning. It is a, a paradigmatic torture technique that has long been considered a war crime and the United States has prosecuted enemy soldiers and even U.S. troops for engaging in the practice. Although this barbaric practice has been uniformly renounced by the United States and other nations committed to human dignity and the rule of law, the technique has reportedly been used against terror suspects in CIA custody in so-called black site prisons. The items used to conduct the deputies' waterboarding acts were a variety of liquids obtained from the premises. Rankin County deputies waterboarded Jenkins and Parker by continuously pouring the liquids on their face while both men were handcuffed, men and forced on their backs. At all times relevant, these acts of torture and humiliation occurred while deputies were under the supervision of Sheriff Ryan Bailey, Rankin County. During these acts, deputies used vicious racial slurs such as nigger and monkey. Rankin County deputies Elward, McAlpin, Dead, uh, Deadman, and three others, or a combination thereof, attempted to use a dildo or sexual device against Mr. Jenkins and Mr. Parker in the course of this torture session on January 24, 2023. Photographic evidence confirms that a dildo or sexual device was used by the deputies at the crime scene. Both victims, Jenkins and Parker, allege and have informed the Mississippi Bureau of Investigation, MBI, that Rankin County deputies possessed the dildo and they were attempting to use the sexual device on both of them. Jenkins and Parker were sitting on the couch with their hands cuffed behind their backs, surrounded by defendants Elward, McAlpin, Deadman, and the other three deputies. Deputies attempted to put the dildo sexual device in the mouths of both Jenkins and Parker, but they were unsuccessful. Deputies then turned Michael Jenkins on his stomach in an attempt to use the sexual device on Jenkins from the rear, but discovered that Jenkins had defecated on himself. Deputies laughed and mocked Jenkins at this point. Jenkins and Parker alleged that for Jenkins, but for Jenkins defecating on himself, the sexual device dildo would have been inserted in his anal cavities by the Rankin deputies. These shocking, sick, and sadistic attempted sexual assaults were designed to harm and humiliate Jenkins and Parker. They went on to hurl eggs at them. Uh, they put them in the shower together. All of this. They put chocolates on that. Even <laughs> you couldn't make this up, man. If they had put this in an episode of I don't CSI or one of these Netflix series, like come on, come on. <laughs> when when is this the true crime community? When are they going to do this one? Put this on Forty Eight Hours or something. And I mean, don't leave out nothing. The dildo defecating on themselves, the chocolate sauce, threw eggs at them, the monkey, all of it, put it there. Even old no count, my BFF, Amy Goodman. Now, you remember last week, she had them as guests on the program. She had attorney Shabazz and everything. Man, I'm sure Amy Goodman got access to this report. She could have read this. She could have made sure to point out same thing that I said. She could have pointed out Daryl Dudman. Oh, yeah, he killed James Craig Anderson. She didn't do that, nor did she include chocolate sauce. Dildo, chocolate sauce, and you make them shower together. What in the Donald Sterling? 
what in the delectable Negro? I said, man, I love Invisible Negro. I love Invisible Man as much as one can in a system of racism, but that cannot be number one anymore. The number one book forever on Gus T's top ten list is Vincent Woodard, The Delectable Negro, Human Consumption and homoeroticism in U.S. slave culture in places like Mississippi. Now, the thing is, so if you got chocolate sauce at the ready, you got a dildo at the ready, you got eggs even at the ready. How many times have you done this? Remember Pulp Fiction? I did write a review of that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We talked about that with Dr. Martin Kevorkian. I said one of the most important scenes in that film, Ving Rhames, when he gets sodomized by a white male in an enforcement official uniform. Takes another white man to save him, old Bruce Willis. And they gag him too. Might pour chocolate sauce on him. I don't know. Delectable Negro. That's your privileged black male. In Mississippi. And that's close to Jackson. I forgot. Oh, I'm wounded. Oh, you go to Jackson. You can't drink the water. And they pour chocolate sauce and rape Negro's. They mad at Deion Sanders. Remember that? They were mad at him. You should have stayed prime. Why you leave us? Go off to Colorado. You should have stayed prime. Man, I don't I don't like the chocolate sauce. No, I don't I don't mm-mm. They got the dildos and the No no, I don't I'm prime time, you know. <laughs> I'm gonna deal with the bombers out in Colorado. Hope they don't blow up me. Thank you. Go boulders. Buffaloes, that's it. Go buffaloes. Anyway, uh, I don't even know what to say, man. Check the news, man. Check the news. Avoid Mississippi for a lot of reasons. My God. Comment on a few of the other news reports. And then uh, much obliged listener mailed me the Rankin County court filings so I could get the exact details about what did they do? Got to plead guilty to all of this? How many years has this been going on in Mississippi? Matter of fact, that reminded me, we had a whole program back in the spring of 2012 with a gay white man, so-called, about his writings, Chasing Chocolate. We talked about, what's that P word I just said, pornography, and why would white men have a fetish for seeing a white male be gang raped by five black males why would they want to see that and then why would that be called chasing chocolate delectable negro human consumption homoeroticism in the book club some of the other reports uh, 
transition. So I mentioned before we did a program about a year into the COVID-19 situation. We had a number of non-white children on the program uh, talk about just their thoughts and observations a year or so into the pandemic, how it's impacted their classroom situation, just the health impact. A number of them talked about relatives and people that they know who have passed away uh, since COVID-19. Many of them related to COVID-19, although not all, some of them passed away from other things. Uh, but it was fascinating just hearing, you know, everything that they've seen and experienced over this time period. And I inquired if there were non-white children who would be interested in giving an update now that we have returned to school uh, things are so called over at least for the moment I don't know we have to see uh, but at least to get an update what do they think now uh, and given the recent reports about the drops in academic performance and standardized test scores for many students in the US let's check in again drop me an email until justice at gmail.com I think it would be great to do it sometime in September that way people will have at least a few days to kind of be back in school so they can kind of see are they already talking about you know what happens if you know they say oh my goodness it's a crisis again are they talking about masks vaccines boosters like that'll give us time to kind of see what the beginning of the new school year is going to look like uh, so let me know if we have folks out there, if you have offspring, if you would be interested in sharing thoughts, observations, what you are seeing, what your offspring, what they're seeing, if they would like to call in and share a few thoughts, we will not be nasty or rude, uh, just gently seeing their thoughts. Hopefully we'll have a few uh, children be interested in sharing kind of what their experience has been and kind of not just at the beginning of this year, but now. So it'd be over the past since 2020. If they were with us before, great. Checking in again. If they were not, that's fine too. Just what has the last three and a half years been like? Uh, did they like it better not being in school? Was there a silver lining, quote unquote? Was there a benefit to not being in school all that time? Depending on your region, did your school even shut down? Were they grousing about masks? Did you have to get vaccinated? All of the and the academic impact. Have your grades been about the same? Has it been difficult? All of that. Like, let's let's hear how non-white people with their thinking, experiencing, feeling uh, three and a half years into all of this. Until justice at gmail dot com. Until justice at gmail dot com. We'll pick a date time to do this in September, but let folks know if you have cousins, nephews, uh, children in the neighborhood or what have you. If they're non-white, they'd be interested in dialing in and sharing with us for a little while. We will get it done next month. Now, uh, let's see a few things that I will share from some of the reports we heard at the beginning. Let's see. Okay. We heard the situation in Maui directly related to white supremacy, racism. They have all these cute titles. Uh, Naomi Klein, I remember she, she is uh, classified as white. Uh, she wrote a book, I think it's called Disaster Capitalism. Dr. Cornell West is a big fan of Naomi Klein. Naomi Klein. Uh, but she wrote a book, Disaster Capitalism, and now they got this uh, plantation disaster 
capitalism and all the rest of it it is the system of white supremacy racism when they talk about these realtors who are coming in and oh my gosh the fire and oh we'll put some money in your hands so you can rebuild and all of that get on with your life predominantly they're talking about individuals who are classified as white same thing before I don't think it's Benjamin Crump I don't think it's Al Sharpton I don't think OJ Simpson is coming in what they call fire sale and scooping up real estate in Maui. I just don't think so. I could be in error, but I don't think so. White supremacy, racism in layers, and even they talked about the management of the land that led to further decimation and or at least making them more vulnerable for wildfires in addition to the whole climate change destruction that's white people's fault too lots of elements of white supremacy racism usual suspects and again lots of non-white people harmed in that part of the world according to the census less than 35 percent of the population in that part of the world are classified as white so it'd be a lot of non-white people harmed uh let's see the the segment on the antioch police department Bay Area uh, where they had 10 officers who've been arrested federal charges and all of this these text messages where they said about half of the department was either engaged in these texts and or they're seeing them and they're not oh wait a minute maybe you all shouldn't be doing this or nothing like that they don't say anything Mm. in my view That's not ignorant. If half the department is involved in this, we'll assume some of the non-white members of the department might have been excluded from this. So that's a big chunk of that half that's excluded from this. They didn't get all of these jokes and comments and bragging and all the rest of it. That is not white people are ignorant. In fact, it would seem that it's probably the white people there were more informed about the nature and depths of racism and then fabricating charges and all of it. Now, I've been playing reports, reading about the situation in Antioch, mostly because of these text messages. Like they've even had cases. It was a black female, non-white female victim of racism where she was killed. Body was thrown in a dumpster. And I think uh, her corpse was mutilated. They couldn't prosecute the case because some of these officers were the arresting officers. And... How are we going to put them on the stand? Same thing with Mark Furman. And they dropped the charges. Family irate as they should be. Non-white people in the area irate as they should be. But hey, and I said, it could be a whole with a cascade avalanche metaphors of cases. Dozens of them. Who knows that end up what they will say are tainted because of the officers involved. Now you got to go back. Everybody who's been arrested. Now you got to go back and check all those cases. If I was one of the folks who had been arrested by one of them. Oh, man, I want every sort of appeal, mistrial, get the case dismissed, everything. Conviction vacated, all of it. You don't have police officers. I think that's why Fuller says that you don't have police officers, enforcement officials. Uh, and 
I didn't even grasp. I hadn't heard it before. They said they had an officer who was bragging about the number of times his dog bit people. They said racism is at the center of all of this. Nigger this and nigger that and blah, blah, blah and all this. Bragging about the number of times my dog has bit someone. Given what we've heard, Dr. Tyler Perry was with us in 2020, and then just a couple of days ago, Dr. Madeline Wizelcheck. Most of those dogs, it's not even just targeted at non white people. Both of those white authors, one male, one female, they both write and told us these dogs specifically chomp black males. I would love to get the demographics. So since you brag about it, oh, I've got another one. Got another one. <laughs> Who are the people that got bitten? Let's see the statistics. For the folks in these departments, Antioch, East Bay, let's see the statistics for who got bitten. I'm pretty sure they weren't taking the dogs out to Walnut Creek. I could be totally in error. I doubt it. The very next report, they talked about, man, we got to get the funding for the canine unit. Oh, my goodness. Ventura County. And they titled it. Woof. The Ventura County canines, aren't they? I didn't even put those sound effects in. They had the dog on there. Woof, 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 woo. And they thought of that. They're German. Yes, yes. They were trained in Germany. One of the dogs, sporting dog, the other dog. He was an officer in Clayton County. They have a lineage of, take a bite out of crime. Negras too. And they went on to explain... It sounded verbatim what we just talked about with Dr. Wazelcheck. She said, we don't get a Labrador or a Golden Retriever. No, 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 no. We want a German Shepherd. We want a dog that is intimidating. We want to terror uh, excuse me, to terrorize the Negro. We want to inspire fear. They will comply. The dog is agile. It's fast. And it loves dark meat. Strike that last part. I didn't mean to say that. But it is fast and it's agile. What in the world? And then she said, hey, they don't deploy these dogs everywhere. They only use this talk for certain people. Don't run. We want you to be afraid. You see us coming. You tremble in fear. And then sell it. Woof, woof. We need funding. Give us a few nickels so we can train. Did you hear that? Oh, woof, woof gets a $2,000 bulletproof vest. What in the man? Whose life is worth more? Put that on Oscar Grant Bay Area. Whose life is worth more? All that training. They go out and have the bake sales and everything they need to get the funding to take care of Woof Woof. And then the nigger. Eh, eh, eh. You'll get to it. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, let's see. Uh, let's see. We heard 
Oh, and then I do not feel vindicated. I just want to make sure I get that for the record. I wouldn't care how many charges that they bring forward. I do not feel vindicated. There are many year or uh, there are many cases of black people being tasered, abused by enforcement officers. That is, you know, just because they bring charges and what have you. They didn't even say that they got a conviction. That does not make me feel any type of way convicted happy none of the above same way with the brawl in Montgomery video where people were celebrating and black self-respect they defended a brother and all that nah, 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 nah. Uh, the segment the 12 year old uh, who was handcuffed for taking out the trash they had the audacity to use the phrase oh man he was just you know in the wrong place at the wrong time I thought they said oh Tayshawn Bernard I thought they said he was taking out the trash is that being in the wrong place? I'm I'm asking, like for real. Is that being in the wrong place? If you take out the tray, your parent comes says, "Hey, put that game down, unhand the video games for 30 seconds, take out the trash, get outside." You say, "Well, wait a minute, that's you know, that's being in the wrong place, Dad. You know, I can't take out the trash." Whoa. I. Pfft. I would learn something. I wish I had known that when I was a child because I would have never taken out the trash. He's 12 year old. I take out the trash. And oh, wait a minute. He fits the description. Now, when I heard his voice, I had already seen what Tayshawn Bernard looked like. But when I heard his voice, it stunned me because he sounds like a 12 year old. It didn't sound like I'm talking to a seasoned, accomplished rapist like old non-Clemson dad. Yeah. It didn't sound like it. He sounds like, oh, this might actually be a child. But they say that black people, they don't see black children. They are not boys and gals. They are full-grown adult rapist. Now, you see, that fits the description. See, that is the old one of many Negro scams. You got the old Negro with the garbage can, you see. And sometimes they have another Negro who's in the can and he jumps out and rapes and loots you, see. Or it's the one Negro and he throws the can down. He's got his hatchet or knife or machete or whatever in the can. And he pulls it out and nah, he rapes and loots you, see. I have not heard that. That also seems like one where it might be you talk to him and oh, he actually sounds like a child uh son do you live around okay your dad is okay all right all right great job great job let's do your dad make sure you eat your eat your vegetables eat your vegetables let's do your dad eat your vegetables good boy all right we'll see you soon sir oh and b wait a minute have you seen any looters in the area no yeah okay keep an eye out thank you sir that's the way you could have done it a plus all around everybody you handcuff i don't even know did they have handcuffs that fit a 12 year old jesus christ he said the child is traumatized. I would have been too. Lord, I came out. Do they have the dildo and the chocolate sauce ready for Tayshaun Bernard too? Jesus. Black male privilege. I was thinking to his father like, you get mouthy. We got chocolate sauce and a dildo for you too. If you want to get mouthy. We did read about that in the Hate You Give, formerly the worst book ever. She does have that there with the police. We will happily 
toss a mouthy Negro parent on the ground in front of your child. No problem. Happy to do it. Huh. You might be the looter in the neighborhood. We don't know. You got so much lip. When I heard that report, amongst many others, that reminded me. It was so refreshing. We heard from Toriano Porter. I broke my rule. We spoke with a black male guest. He did not have a definition for racism. No problem. I'm just pointing that out as a pattern. But we spoke to Toriano Porter and I asked him, I said, man, did you tell, because he has children, offspring. I said, did you tell your son who's 15, did you tell him about Ralph Yarrow? Because he's almost the same age as your child, one year different. He was shot by that white dude right there in Kansas City. Drove to the wrong house and bang, get out of my yard. You're about to rape and loot me. I said, did you tell your child about that? He said, no way. Mm-mm. I try to give him a shield. It's so much that we already have to deal with and blah, 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 and all the rest of it. And I just want to shield him from all that. Victims guaranteed qualified. And even beyond that, Gus T is not a parent. All of that said, just according to counter-racist logic, according to the experience of Tayshawn Bernard and many other black males and black females, there is no shield. You have to tell your offspring about racism, white supremacy at minimum, just so that they can understand in advance in those situations why he said, man, that situation could have been way worse. What if his son had been panicked and ran? Oh, my Lord. I'm of the opinion you have to tell them as early as possible. They have no problem shackling a 12-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 9-year-old, a 6-year-old, male or female. And it's a record of that. You have to. This is the same way you tell them about the dog because they put the dogs on the children, too. That's in the report. You have to talk to them about these things. You make it age appropriate. But I mean, hey, I would like to be shielded from this. I am not a 10 year old. Everybody would like to be shielded from this. That is not possible. This is information to help. Hopefully you make decisions to keep yourself safe so that you can understand the enormous danger we are in. And that's all of us. And even I can't even protect you to understand the power dynamics of that. Like, hey, it's only so much I can do because they could shackle and beat me, too. It's a whole lot like maybe even all of that should be discussed before you have offspring. preparing for that you can't be thinking we hope that day doesn't come you have to be thinking this day is going to come it's just a matter of time the police stop or you fit the description or whatever might come when they're 12 might come when they're 10 might come when they're 15 might come when they're 22 but it is going to happen and if it's not a race soldier with a badge without a badge that day is coming Next, uh, let's see. They had the report, Michael Orr. That'll be, I think I can deal with that. My last one, and then we can get to the folks who dialed in. I took so many notes on this one. Man, 
preface that one of the reasons it took so long to get this report together this week, I knew I was going to preface that report with Jane Elliott. That was Jane Elliott talking about how much she loved the blind side, the smashing performance from the white woman. Sandra Bullock, there were so many people out caping for Sandra Bullock this week. Like, that is my gal. You don't talk bad about Sandy. Oh my gosh. Wasn't she amazing in the blind side? Wasn't she great in 28 days? Oh Lord. She loves Michael Lord. She loves the Negro children. What do you mean? Oh, this is terrible. Oh. Anyway, Jane Elliott, she said, oh, I loved it. Wasn't it lovely? Oh, Sandra Bland. She looked, she had her friends white. She said, oh, I forgot this child. And she was even, she had made such a big point, admitted racist Jane Elliott. She had made such a point of mocking and opposing. She wouldn't even answer questions where I said non-white. You can't say non-white. Oh, no, 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 no. That I love it because it's so glaring 13 years later and because especially more people say non-white now than they did 13 years ago. But oh no, you don't say non-white to me. You say person of color and all that nonsense. She got this non-white, non-female child. She had even said earlier, we got a system of male supremacy, which I do not agree with and never have, but whatever. If it's male supremacy, why is it a non-female? It would just be a male, right? Admit it, but that's what I expect from an admitted racist as she said on that program and her subsequent visits. That's what I would expect. And we talked about that exactly confusing language. We don't want clarity. Couldn't just be, yeah, they adopted this non-white child classified as a black male, but non-white child. And, oh, my friends don't understand. They're racist. My white friends are racist. What are you doing? Got this Negro male. He's going to rape you. And oh, oh, the courage. Oh, that's Sandra Bland. And now, not that there weren't legions of people then saying, oh, God, here we go. Another racist film. We got to have a white person as a savior. Yes, yes. We talked about all this way back then repeatedly, even with Dr. Kevorkian. But to get this now from the main star of the film subject if you will reading more important than watching television times 50 Michael Orr black male comes out to say all of this and the first thing that he says when speaking about this situation is his portrayal as a black male who can't read it's many things that he could have said about all that but it was specifically portraying me as a black male who can't read said I was already an all-american football player when I got there I was writing plays not just literate I was writing plays when I got there why I know it's Hollywood you got to do it up but I mean dang why do I have to be some illiterate no-count coon don't know one plus one is two until a white woman comes in my life and now I can read. Why does that have to be in the plot? Black males can't read. Even when you got a lie, that's not even the story. Why is it so important that you got a lie to say that he can't read? Why is that? It couldn't have been a blockbuster film. You couldn't have played that up. Wow. I write a play about my beautiful blonde white mother. You're the princess. They couldn't have done it that way. Nah. It'll be better. The audience, they like it better. We like an illiterate coon. Oh. 
Okay. So they continue. Uh, this is uh, Michael Orr, Super Bowl champion Mike Orr. He's on the Jim Rome broadcast for this interview. This is a white male. And so he's going over all the different things that he had to do to get to this point, uh, which, you know, hey, kudos to him. Black self-respect initiative, all that good stuff. Jim Rome does not focus at all on the lawsuit, the white family. Did they lie? Did they try to swindle money from you from the blind side? What is this conservatorship? None of that. You heard. He spent about 15, 16 minutes talking. You heard everything he had to say about the blind side. He talked about football things and all this other stuff. It was way more focused. What's the term I use? The Negro trauma drama that is because of white people. Now he goes in the, all right, give us some of the nitty gritty. Memphis. Mm, the gritty side. A minute they call it the grind house. Yes, tell us, tell us about what it was like in Memphis. Oh, you were in foster care. Oh, you left foster care. Oh, how many houses were you in? Pause right there, Doctor Francis Cress Welsing. No throwaway offspring. Why do you keep running away at ten? from these foster care homes I don't even think we want to know he didn't ask that question what was so bad what was the problem were they mean to you was the food bad did you miss your biological family members what was the problem Jim Rome didn't care about that at all I want to know what was it like he's telling them about school and I gotta get a, a, a routine together you know that's important I want to go to school. I'm around all these people where the culture is nothing. Now, he doesn't say, why is the culture nothing? That my life is nothing. Why is that in Memphis? Is John Morant's fault running around with gun videos every day? Is his fault that it's like that? Oh, dang, this was before John. Sorry. Sorry, brother John. We can't even put this on John Morant. Nah. He goes through all of this. And it's not an investigation of, dang, I don't even know how you did that. Even I got to pause one more time. Michael Orr said he ran away from foster care and all these other facilities. They put him in a mental institution. Jesus Christ. Oh, my head hurt. They put him in a mental institution. He said he ran away and he said the state of Tennessee gave up on him. I pause again. That's three in, in one report. What does that mean? The state gave up on you as a child. What does that mean? They said, hey, we're washing our hands of you. Metaphor, you keep running away and cutting up. Didn't we put you in the foster care? Wasn't Jerry Sandusky trying to take care of you? You need to get it straightened up and fly right. Matter of fact, we're done. We're done. We cut, don't, even, don't even come for us anymore. Hell. Just get on out of here. Does that, is that what that means? What does that mean? They give up on you? Do they just set you up with a bank account? They give you a hotel room and a key and tell you deuces, make the best? Jesus Christ, no throwaway offspring. 
So all of that notwithstanding, and the reason individuals classified as black and non-white people at large do not have a routine is not because we are lazy and no count and shiftless. It is because we are in a system of white supremacy racism that is designed to make sure that we do not have a routine other than white man, white woman are in charge and we will tell you what the routine is for today, for this hour, for the next five minutes, whatever it's going to be. All that said, he goes into all of this. What is Jim Rohn, white man, interviewing him? You're leaving out the good stuff, man. Didn't you smoke crack? Tell us about the crack cocaine. Didn't you smoke crack? I'd said that for years. Negro trauma drama. When white people get in these sort of interviews, they love it. That's a whole different level of consumption right there. Oh, my Lord. Michael, you know what I want to hear. I don't want to hear about the time you and Cam Newton went to the Super Bowl. I don't want to hear about the time you and Ray Lewis almost shot somebody. I want to hear about the time that you walked in and your mother had sold your bicycle for the last vial of crack cocaine. Mm, 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 mm. And you had to fight with your brother and your three cousins for the last drumstick. Tell us all about it. Tell us all about it. Mm, mm, mm. And the crack cocaine. Mm, mm, mm. And everybody did crack cocaine. Mm, mm, mm. And you sold crack cocaine. Mm, mm, mm. The lawsuit. We get to all that. The crack cocaine. Get back to the crack cocaine. Mm, mm, mm. Now, do they do that when they talk to these, when they talk to Brett Favre? And I, we get to the Super Bowls and all that. Man, Brett Favre, tell us about the painkillers, man. Mm-hmm. Oxycontin, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you're on the bottle too. Mm-hmm. Tell us about it. Tell us about it. Mm-hmm. Do they do that with Brett Favre? They don't. They don't do that. Do you see that? We got to talk about the crack coat. That's what you want to focus on with Michael Orr. And then, and then, one more time, the number one book forever, and it's not even close. Delectable Negro, Human Consumption and homoeroticism in U.S. slave culture. Now, this time, the consumption aspect of it, that book talks also explicitly about racists having control of whether non-white people get to eat. Talking about all the famine on the continent right now, blaming on Putin and the conflict with Ukraine and all that, but the end result, nobody over here is struggling to get their gluten-free pizza but the Negroes on the continent, ooh-wee, I don't know if they're going to get a sandwich. I don't, ooh, might be tough. Michael Orr, foster care, Negro child in America, Graceland, Tennessee, and all of it. I'm right here. Man, I don't know. Got the steel and all that. Jim Rohn is up here chuckling. He said, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Tell me, tell me, tell me, Mike. Look here, Mike. Tell us about the time. What was your favorite thing to steal to eat? Tell us about it. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Oh, he's stealing ham. He's stealing ham. I see it. Wait a minute. I see it in my mind. I see it in my mind. We got Big Black Mike. He's got a whole grocery shopping cart. He got the candy ham. And he's stealing. <laughs> he said, deuces, he got the ham. I see it. I see it right now. He got it again. <laughs> you colored folks kill me. Woo. And then you take the credit here and you go trade him for the crack cocaine. <laughs> We got Michael with us, and he wrote. I don't really think that that's funny. 
I don't think even that's the most important part. If anything, dang, Mahmoud Abdul-Rah, how many of these times do I have to hear black males, particularly privileged black males, these are the athletes that get all the contracts and everything else, and this is rooted in, we don't even have a sandwich, much less privilege, we don't even have a sandwich. I go to jail trying to steal ham, and that's funny to you. That's a joke to you. That's what you want to talk about. Crack cocaine and we didn't even have a sandwich. Not these white people stealing money from me. They got to lie in the story and portray me as a no-count ignorant black male who steals sandwiches and smoke crack cocaine. That's not even true. No, 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 no. You're stealing the candied hams. I see it. Mm. <laughs> Michael, the candied ham thief. Mm-hmm. Once again, you'll see that pattern consistently when white people do these sort of trauma, Negro trauma, drama, they get to talk to a black person that they've allowed to have a few more bits of cornbread. They don't have to go and loot the Piggly Wiggly now. Oh, tell us about the good old days. Oh, wasn't it great? Oh, ho, ho, ho. Yeah, yeah. Right on Jim Rome. We'll see what happens with the rest of the lawsuit. Uh that said, uh number again, six oh five three one three five one six four. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like. To participate, number again, 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND, press star 61 if you would like to participate. Let us see, folks who dialed in with a hand up give me a moment to move back to the there we go alrighty folks who dialed in with a hand up line should be open feel free let's see may I be heard greetings Lauren yes ma'am um, thank you, sir. Good evening to everyone, and thank you for allowing me to speak. Um, I, the first thing I wanted to talk about was those um, wildfires in Hawaii. Um, the non-white lady who was talking, she it seems like she is really trying to assist the non-white people in that area, so I do think that's admirable. Um, but she didn't say white people. She kept saying a lot of things. Um, the arrival of plantation interests, um, uh, corporations, uh, plantation capitalists, large landed interests. Uh, and she even said, when well, this was really long, incredibly privileged large landed interests. She kept saying all those things instead of just saying white people or even, you know, powerful white people. That might, that would have been a more accurate term. Um, 
me see. Um, the the black lady who went to the bank, um, and I think it was Aurora, um, Janetta Vaughn. You know, she sits down to unlock her bank card. The white lady comes over, and <laughs> you know, uh, asks her, starts you know questioning her, and then calls the police. And then she tells the police. All she had to do was let me know what she was doing and not be snarky. Man, if you do not, when you, I guess when white people come over to start the interrogation, you better be super nice or you're going to jail. That's what they want. And she probably wanted it to be worse than that, you know, for her to get shot or beat up in the bank or you know, something massively incorrect. That's that's what they want when they get on the phone and call the police. So, I don't know. And also, they have been four racial discrimination complaints at the same Chase uh, Bank. Has that lady? Oh man, that's that's probably her every time. Um, mm, in Antioch, California, the law enforcement officers. All the things that they were doing, they're cheating in college classes to get raises on their job, conspiracy to sell drugs, anabolic steroids, which, wow, that's, that's a whole thing right there. Um, civil rights violations, illegal use of the force, sharing photos of victims' injuries, taking police dogs on people, then sending a text message with the number of bites up to 28. Then it said, I think it said they were collecting spent ammunition to keep it like a memento. I, I think that's what I heard. And almost half the department was in on that. You know, we've heard segments about this already, but the part that really I found, hmm, I'm not going to say it's astounding. It's not surprising at all in a system of white supremacy, but that the charges of cheating in the college classes and the wire fraud that stuff carried twice as much time penalty as the mistreatment of the non-white people. I think that was an important takeaway. Also, the lady uh, talking, she said, uh, it's a little murky. <laughs> so, um, they, the dogs, I did notice that um, when they were talking about the canine dogs, um, they named the dog Thor. Uh, you know, it, it really made me think about dogs and, you know, the... Uh, spelling it backwards, God. Um, then, he, you know, he was talking about, like, why you would need a dog. And he said it could be a pyro area. Like, why did he? I, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess he could have said blood. I, I, I don't know. But, well, I, I do get why he didn't say the Negro area. But that's what he meant, you know. Um, and then, you know, they're talking about how to act around these dogs and petting them. And, you know, he gives the warning. Every dog is different. You know, you should ask before petting them. Who is trying to pet a police dog or a law enforcement dog, whatever you want to call these animals? Um, it has to be white people. I, I can't imagine trying to walk up to a law enforcement officer and pet the drug dog or whatever you want to call them. Um, that 12-year-old who was handcuffed by law enforcement when he was taken out the trash, one, it sounded like a black male. I don't know. I didn't see video. But he said, I was so mad, I didn't want to hear anything. Uh, BGQ. And also, 
being angry is understandable, but I think it would benefit non-white black people greatly to be less emotional and to start being more attentive to the words um, that are being used. Um, hey, I was thinking some of the same things about um, Michael Orr. Um, you know, he thought he was adopted, and then he finds out it was a conservatorship. Like, and he just found this out not too long ago. Um, and these these white people, um, Sandra Tui and I forget the husband's name, they're worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Why would they do that? It, I guess that's a rhetorical question. I mean, if you're in a system of white supremacy, you're supposed to mistreat non-white people. But, geez. That's just, I don't know, gratuitous mistreatment, if you will. And I also noticed how excited, how enthusiastic the um, the host was about talking about all those things um, with him, you know. But you, you talked about that. Um, I, I saw in the newspaper that two white men are suing Michael Jackson, saying he sexually abused them. He died in June 2009. That was 14 years ago. So even in death, just continuous mistreatment. And, and that's all I have for right now. Thank you for allowing me to speak. Even in death, it continues. Poor Michael Jackson, who is also mentioned in the text we'll chat it up about on Monday, John Benet Ramsey, just in passing. Uh, 1996 Michael Jackson was still with us Um, the segment that was Democracy Now! my BFF Amy Goodman her guest non-white female she was in Hawaii uh, Kapuala Sprout non-white female looks like to me Um, It lots of terms that was Naomi Klein that she's a white woman but lots of terms disaster capitalism and all the rest of this neo-colonialism Lots of terms, everything other than white supremacy, racism, and exactly not white people who are responsible for these plantations and the destruction of the environment in uh, Hawaii and trying to hog water rights and subvert land rights and what have you under these emergency apocalyptic, really, uh, conditions. Uh, that whole situation in Colorado, Aurora specifically, uh, where they had uh, black female uh, Janetta Vaughn out there just trying to do a little. Bang. And she's 61 years old too. Normally they say, you know, if you're older and you got a few gray hairs, that you know maybe you're less threatening and they'll be a little bit more uh, cordial to you, you know, in treatment in public spaces and things. Hmm. Hmm. I don't know. Uh, We just, at the very beginning of the year, Emily Flitter, she was a guest on the program. We talked about her book, The White Wall, and she talked about this sort of situation exactly, uh, where black people attempt to go to the bank, and some white person, often white females, uh, they fabricate some sort of justification that you were threatening or sassy or uppity or whatever, uh, and boot you out of the or call the police or both uh, and then make notifications to other bank branches and say oh yeah you gotta watch this one you know attitude and comes in and is you know disrespectful and loud and all the rest of it and then some of those banks just off of that notification 
they will, you know, fabricate. Re- oh, no, we can't, you know, cash your check or we can't release funds to you or, you know, you're not welcome at this bank either because you, you know, sassed our friend. That type of thing. Like she, she literally has a whole chapter in her book. We talked about that at the very beginning of the program. She... She said all the cases that she talked to, it was black males. Not that I couldn't believe this happened to a black female. Clearly it did. They got the video and everything. Uh, Jeanetta Vaughn's just in her book, it was black male victims. But whole chapter, the book, The White Wall, appropriately named. Anywho, let's see. Number again, 605-313-5164. The code 564. Four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, let's see. The make sure. <laughs> Making sure I didn't miss any of the report. Oh, I did miss one report. I did miss that was two reports. I had the report on Buffalo meant to include and also uh, Deja Taylor. I've been talking about her since the Catherine Massey Book Club this past Thursday. Uh, Deja Taylor, black female. She was convicted. Uh, Her six-year-old son, he's the one who took the firearm to school and shot a white instructor. She lived, uh, but she pled guilty, uh, criminal negligence uh, on the part of Deja Taylor, black female, this past week. So we'll see, you know, what happens and what her sentencing is and all of that. I said that is, an, in my view, astronomical contrast to Sue Klebold and some of these other situations, many of these other situations where a child takes a gun to school and does, you know, whatever. Uh, but that was just this week. She gave uh, an interview after the court proceedings. I'd even thought about including that with the book club, but man, we've been over time and I've done a poor job with time management on that as well. But I had that for today and just, that was two should have been there. Buffalo lawsuit, Deja Taylor. Next time we'll include both those. Let's see. folks are spectating we'll give them another minute or so to see if they have thoughts they would like to share no spectating if you have additional observations thoughts for the week in addition to being here on monday 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific and then again on tuesday 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific one idea that i did have uh today i've said for a number of years we are the biography kings uh, for the book club in particular Uh, we've had so many uh, different books uh, bios that we've covered Uh, Ben Tillman read that one back in 2015 Asada Shakur uh, Malcolm X Richard Williams was just talking about that one uh, Madiba Nelson Mandela uh, Dr. Maya Angelou Uh, I could go on I mean we've read a lot of Alice Seabold really Um, hey Sue Klebold that would count too. We've read a lot of biographies, autobiographies, memoirs uh, over the years. I think they are super important. They would generally qualify as nonfiction. I think they can be really informative, uh, just really focusing in on one person's 
life and you know times accomplishments whatever it is tribulations whatever um, it can be a very informative way to learn a lot of specifics about racism white supremacy at a specific time period in a specific geographic location or in a number of different ways uh, I think many people have said that they've learned a lot from Minister Malcolm X's autobiography and Richard Williams there's a reason that you know we have read so many biographies over the years uh, and particularly for certain people uh, their key public figures sometimes there'll be a bunch of biographies to just kind of go over their life their influences developments and you know how they came to some of their accomplishments and what they had to overcome you know difficulties and challenges that they had in the midst of trying to you know publish that book or whatever it is that they were trying to do give birth to you know Serena and Venus and get them all trained to conquer the tennis world uh, I see a tremendous value uh, in that and just kind of following one particular person uh, over the period of their lifetime over a number of years all of that to say it would, in my opinion, be an extremely constructive project investment to have non-white people write a biography on Neely Fuller Jr. and Dr. Welsing. It would be great. They had there's so many people that talked to them, uh, were influenced by them, uh, who you know appreciated their time, energy, investments, all of that. There's so much uh, public material for both Mr. Fuller and Dr. Welsing. Uh, and that's the sort of project I could easily see if we are still in a system of white supremacy racism. Let's say 50 years, 60 years later, I could easily see a white person because that, that has happened so frequently. It's a white woman who has the signature biography for Rosa Parks. It's a white man who has the signature biography for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And you can just go, you know, on and on down the line in terms of key figures classified as black and or non-white, where it's white people who are the so-called experts on their story uh, to at minimum. Hey, it, even better if you get these folks to write their own book, but at minimum to have non-white people uh, who were impacted by them even better if you had contact with them directly while they were here uh, and or at minimum can sincerely do the research you know listen to as much material as possible view as much material as possible read as much material as possible read what they wrote and all the rest and then talking to uh, people uh, as many people as possible who knew them that you have access to uh, but I think certainly for all of the the effort time and energy that Dr. Welsing, Mr. Fuller have invested. They both wrote uh, books in addition to everything else that they did while they've been on the planet. I think both of them would be worthy of, you know, a biography where white supremacy racism would be right at the uh, center and then for other people to kind of have an appreciation for a lot of reasons for other people to kind of have an appreciation for what they had to uh, endure uh, to get to that point and what they had to endure for all of those years to discuss white supremacy racism, Dr. Welsing and her housing situation and being denied tenure and how she was ridiculed by her colleagues, like make sure all of that is included in the fact we don't even have black doctors now, much less her trying to go through med school 60 years ago.
all of that. I mean, talk about putting things in context for Neely Fuller Jr. growing up in Muskogee, Oklahoma, born in 1929, and what he had to endure to get that book out and the whole process, how we met Dr. Welsing and to get, you know, the book published. Like, they be some great stories. And again, everything would center around white supremacy racism. So definitely at least one. And I mean, for a number of people, there are many by like there are many biographies on Minister Malcolm X. There are many biographies on Dr. Martin Luther King, um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So maybe Dr. Welsing and Mr. Fuller, they could have many biographies, but I definitely think that would be a worthwhile project. I would read if there wouldn't you read it folks out there, right? If there was a biography on Dr. Welsing that was constructive, accurately written, you know, accurately sourced footnotes, all that good stuff. Wouldn't you read it? I think that would be constructive. I would read it. Biography for Mr. Fuller, biography for Dr. Well, or even plural. Putting that, if it does exist, then great. People can drop me an email and we can read it. But I have not heard or seen such a project. I think they should uh, exist, even though I know people don't read. That would give people an excuse to read. Certainly, you can go back and read what they wrote, too. But yeah, just to have a little bit more appreciate these people are not robots like I think even just for the Welsing Institute like Dr. Welsing had to endure an extraordinary amount of turmoil unless I am mistaken to do that like it was not an easy process at all it was you know not she had a whole team of people to go out and make photocopies and oh we got the room all ready to roll Dr. Welsing and just show up what's your favorite brevet champagne oh well you can't have that but let's see what you want smoothie oh we got no problem boom 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 smoothie and would you albino watermelon boom got the boom 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 it was not that I do not think I don't think they had you know uh imported artesian salsa water and her favorite organic produce right there and she could take a break and get massage. Now she had all that at the Welsing Institute. I will stand corrected, but I don't think that was her labor of love and counter racist effort for decades. I think that should be on the and I think that would be constructive to have that on the record and the same thing for Neely Fuller Jr. and getting that book published and how he, you know, the process for getting all of that put together and what made him start thinking about racism, white supremacy, and even the fact, Mr. Fuller, this is not somebody who <clears throat> went and got 15 PhDs before he wrote his code book and what have you. This is, you know, well, now he's better than Mark Furman. He didn't drop out of high school, but I mean, hey, he didn't have 15 degrees behind his name, and he just sat about the process of being scientific, logical, accurate. And go about the process of uh, creating counter-racist codification for himself and that he can publish and share with others. That is important. That means you could do this too. You don't have to go to some white person's school and spend 50000 or $500,000 and be scammed and all the rest of it. No. You can just go about the process of studying and being scientific. Starting right now. Number again, 605-313-5164, decode 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Other folks with a hand up, if you have commentary to share, proceed. Hello, can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. 
Hi, Gus. This is the attempted mother in Atlanta. I haven't called in in a while. Um, I think it would definitely be constructive for a non-white person to write a biography on Dr. Wilson and Mr. Poe. I would definitely read it. Um, I actually called in to share my experience that I had today. I attended a CPR class. I'm now certified, CPR certified, and I wanted to share that it was in a class that was all non-white black people. Um, the instructor was a black male. It was about two, four, six, eight, nine, eight or nine people in the class. Um, I was really surprised it was there weren't any whites. I was kind of concerned, but I went anyway because I was, um, after that happened to the Buffalo Bills football player, and just hearing you talk about how the statistics on how us as um, black people and the numbers as far as us receiving CPR, I decided I was inspired and I decided to go ahead and mark that off my bucket list. So I did do that. The class went well. It was a little, a couple of technical issues, but we completed it and it was really constructive and I'm glad, I'm glad I did it. And I spoke to my sister who is a nurse and my brother in his younger years, he was an EMT. And what I want to do, my plan is to start some type of mobile organization where we can come out to teach CPR to other non-white, mostly black people, because we, we definitely need it. But I wanted to call in to let you know and share that with you and the callers. That was it. Thank you. That is amazing. Wow. Um, dang, that's not being a spectator. One, that is always like eight thumbs up. Uh, and then she said it was all non-white people at the class, even had a black male instructor. Wow. How about that? Um, we absolutely did. We've been talking about that. In fact, we were talking about the, that even before DeMar Hamlin, player for the Buffalo Bills, who looks like he recovered, uh, we think. Uh, but even before that, because they had the big report uh, and we had the guests, they were not. We broke our rule for that. We had the authors of that study, which was published last year about how black people, they do not receive CPR in public and are le less likely to get access to CPR training. So that even more so, I was like, wow, it's all non-white people here. Hmm. But that is exactly uh, the point. And even as we talked about that information later on, one of the co-authors, 
He said he almost died. Black male have to go back to get both their names, but he almost died. He had a, a cardiac arrest at a gym while playing basketball and he was able to get help and all the rest of it. He was fortunate, but I mean, they have, I think we just played the report where they were playing football, black person, black child went into cardiac arrest and it was one person on the coaching staff who knew CPR. He wasn't there when it happened and child didn't make it. Now that's not to say maybe he wouldn't have survived anyway, but I mean, dang, like any little thing that is going to help even I'm sure for his parents if it would just give a half a percent of a chance that he could have survived man let's get the person with the CPR right there and it's so easy like it's not something that's difficult they talked about that when they visited with us and programs where you could teach this to a whole group uh, on a computer with a video where they could be certified they get practice they do it correctly and it doesn't take a whole lot of time. It's not expensive. Like, hey, this is important. Now you got a whole classroom trained where, boom, they could save a life. At least sibling, if they're at home, choke on something, bam. Ah, oh, that is spectacular. Um, I have to, I'll shoot, I can shoot you an email because they talk about that exactly. Different ideas about what you're talking about, different pilot programs to just make it really easy, really accessible to get large groups and even large groups of children easily trained so that they know how to do this. They can save the people that they're around so that more black people have access to this life-saving information. I remember when we talked about this last year, we literally had black people dial in and they said when they went to school in predominantly white environments, mostly white students, they learned CPR in school. They didn't have the prison school pipeline and all that old nonsense and going to school to be suspended and everything else. They learned CPR at school. <laughs> Whose life matters for sure. Uh, number again, 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND press star six one if you would like to participate that is spectacular and she's a parent that is love it love it love it um let's see oh the, she said she had uh family members that are emt they should get kevin siren's book now he is a suspected racist but he was with us last year uh we talked about the cpr report with him on that program but more importantly we talked about the long history of how black people started the EMT program here in the United States. And then they practiced racism and got rid of them all. Uh, workplace racism. We're supposed to get one of those black males on the program. White people brought nunchucks on the job when they were going to work with fellow black EMTs, but they erased that. That's why I said writing biographies so that this is not lost, but that whole history of how the EMT started and was professionalized across the country, so-called in the 1960s and 70s, that is in Kevin Hazard's book, American Siren. He was a guest on the program October 2022. Uh, EMT folks should definitely he even talks about white people and their conspiracy theories in COVID-19. Like, ah, uh, I learned so much. Uh, let's see. Cows is listener supported counter racist radio. 
invest if you think the program is constructive listener supported hit the blog racismnotes.blogspot.com paypal button in the top right corner you'll see the links for cash app venmo and paypal the cash app address cash.app forward slash dollar sign the cows enormous gratitude to all of the investors who have kept us broadcasting for 14 years plus hopefully we have been worthy of your time and energy let's see other folks who dialed in hand up if you have commentary to share proceed May I be heard? Color in Florida? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to just the host, the listeners and callers. Um, I I tuned in, I think it was about maybe 25 or 30, 30 minutes um, after the program started on the audio segment. Um but I did remember hearing about the uh, the segment with uh, the I think his name Michael Orr I think from the uh, or what inspired the Blindside movie and I did notice how it did get tacky toward the end and talking about um, stealing a ham and uh, all of these kinds of food products and. He, he didn't really, the the interviewer didn't really have that same, I guess, interest in how he was being portrayed in the movie, but he wanted to get into the more, uh, what would be entertaining to him, which is showing some kind of uh, racist, I guess, character, or what he is a white person uh, thinks of black people or non-white people, you know, stealing and committing criminal acts and being in that kind of position growing up. Uh, my next one is where the the 12-year-old black male was being arrested. I do notice where it's like, uh, just like the, I think the, the guy name was Ralph. I can't remember his last name that got shot by the white man going up to his door is uh, where they say, you know, this is a, a straight A student. He goes to school. He doesn't do anything wrong and everything. And it's like, you know, it's nothing. I don't think there's anything wrong with sharing that, but it just shows how they still look at you. Hey, you're classified as not white. I'm a white supremacist. You're intimidating to me. You're threatening to me. You're doing something wrong. And that's the system of white supremacy. Um, and I do agree where, and I don't have any children either, where you should be informing your offspring or your children about the system. And um, I was seeing a report, I think that was earlier this week, about the, the black male that I guess they said is being detained in North Korea, St. Travis King, and they mentioned racism. He was trying to seek refuge or something like that because of racism in the army or in the military. 
Uh, I haven't really looked up anything since a couple of days ago. Um, and other than that, thanks for the program. And I do agree I would enjoy uh, reading a biography on Mr. Fuller. So allow me to speak. For sure. Like, he was born the year of the uh, Depression, you know? I mean, that alone. (laughs) People who are like total nobodies, and when I mean a nobody, like, they didn't write a book. Nobody wants to invite them on a program to hear them talk for 20 seconds. (laughs) I mean, total nobody. They didn't accomplish anything. Like, Mark Furman dropped out of high school, uh, dropped out of community college, like, zero accomplishments. But, they were born in or lived through the depression. So, oh my gosh, that's an interview. What was it like? Did you have to steal canned hams? Oh my gosh. What the, <laughs> that sort of thing. Like, man. Um, plus, he has so many interesting uh, stories, you know, about his time in the service and uh, what it was like growing up in Oklahoma. He grew away not that far from Tulsa, Oklahoma. He has so many stories. He lived in Washington, D.C. through 9-11. He went to hear Malcolm X speak. <laughs> like, he has so many stories. Um, yeah, And same thing for Dr. Welsing. Uh, like, for the time period, she is right there. Uh, the Great Migration in Chicago. And, I mean, such a, you know such an illustrious city in the city of, city of uh, system of white supremacy racism uh, with everything that is connected to Chicago with the great migration uh, and the things that she would have seen in that time period with regards to, I mean, they got whole books about that. Them warehousing black people in the South side of Chicago. Uh, We talked about some of that uh, family property, Beryl Satter, president Obama talks about some of that. Uh, Even Erica K Jackson, that was the Nordic whites coming to Chicago and setting up away from the Negros. Uh, But all, I mean, that is enormous. And then her going to Washington, D.C., she also was there for 9-11. She was there for the whole Marion Barry situation. She was there for the whole uh, Obama presidency, as was um, Neely Fuller Jr. Like, that is amazing. Like, just the things that they have seen. Her going through med school at that time period. Uh, She, Dr. Welsing told, uh, she went to Germany wanted to that was her response to world war ii mr fuller talks about that like uh remembering where he was exactly to the day when they bombed pearl harbor dr welsing i after world war ii man i told my parents i'm graduating from college send me to germany i've got to go study racism <laughs> like what in the world like does she take pictures while she was you know in berlin or munich wherever she went you know in like there should be biographies for again I'm totally ignorant so if this is already in the works uh, or exists even great love to see it but and there should be multiple because they like they write bunches of biographies on like Oppenheimer and Mark Twain and uh, John James Audubon and you know people of uh, far less repute than Neely Fuller Jr. and Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. So, yes, I think uh, 
Yeah, it would be great. Like if, you know, someone, if they could get access to some of their family, like I said, who they could maybe get some of the uh, pictures of them at different points uh, in life and get different relatives and such who could talk and give some of the different stories and, and all of that good stuff. But yeah, I think that would be, I mean, these were, these were victims of racism and actual people who did not just, you know, a robot turn on to do an interview or to write a book or whatever. I mean, they had to endure an extraordinary amount to and and withstand all of that to still go out and, you know, publish these books and give these talks and devote all this time and energy to talking about racism. So, yeah, biography for Dr. Welsing, Mr. Fuller, or many of them. But I think that should be should be done folks who you know maybe thinking about a project thinking about writing that's why i said there's so many things that need doing no one should be bored or binge watching television any other comments folks needed to share before we wrap up Grant will assume folks are satisfied. Uh, we will be here on Monday as well as Tuesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. I totally forgot Monday. We will be talking about John Benet Ramsey, but I forgot our guest also wrote a book on school shooters and Columbine mandatory we will have to make time to discuss a tidbit about columbine uh for the folks who have been with us uh for the book club we should even have more columbine programs as we proceed uh mandatory have to ask a white person vodka reb are they racist mandatory mandatory <laughs> the bot I've never asked the bot volunteers. They are for sure racist with evidence. Monday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, Tuesday as well. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cows signing out. No name calling. No gossiping. No throwaway offspring. Bill Russell talked about that. Not producing children. You cannot afford to feed and take care of we do not need any more Michael or Michelle's 
so that white people can snicker about them stealing food because they're hungry and thrown away. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. More CPR. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.